now they were starting to think long-term about the show and like, Hey, we can, you know, have a character here where we can deal with a lot of family dramas, which most of the people that are going to be listening to this show are little kids and families, right? Siblings arguing with each other, you know, respect your mom and dad. Um, How many times can the kids find a, the random kids find a pack of cigarettes and then have to decide what to do. <laughs> the cigarette episodes were my favorites, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy and Donna smoking cigarettes behind the school. Um, oh, yeah. Jimmy has a brown a paper bag under know. the porch. It has funny <laughs> magazines where people don't wear clothes. <laughs> uh, why, why does Jimmy have needle tracks in his arm? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Grown Up Christian. I'm Casey and I'm Sam. And we are back, man. We've had a, we were just talking about it. It's been a couple weeks since we've gotten to do like an intro together yeah. like normal. I'm giddy, man. Yeah. Feeling giddy. We're giddy. This is great. Ah. <laughs> I'm is always it, like bordering with, on giddy. Yeah. <laughs> you did one with April. And then we, I, I don't even remember doing one in between uh, one you did with April and then the one I did with Aaron. I know we got one in there. I feel like it was short. And it feels like it's been four weeks since we've even got on microphone to record. Life's a blur. We're one more month closer to death and we don't even remember it. Yeah. I, I mean, what <laughs> dude? my, my memory is, has been awful, like really awful lately. So yesterday was Halloween when yeah, we're recording this Monday night. Um, and I was like trying to figure out what I had done. Like it was in the afternoon. It was probably around four o'clock. And I knew we had done something that morning. I was like, I did something else today. <laughs> and I couldn't remember. I was like, what, what did I do? I couldn't remember. I feel like it was like something, something notable. And it, it was, uh, my wife's cousin had a baby and we went and visited their newborn, but it took me like 30 minutes of racking my brain pre-drinking to figure out what the fuck I did that morning i was like I, I don't know i couldn't couldn't recall it it was and then i was like i think i should probably go to the doctor this feels like it's bordering on like a real problem of short-term memory loss i don't know I'm, I'm sure i'm fine i think it was just a bad day uh i don't think i was hung over but you've got that like juvenile onset dementia yeah <laughs> god please no i don't want dementia <laughs> i watched some movies about that and that's just scary it yeah it is so uh in the past Week and a half. I think I've driven three thousand miles. That's insane, dude. I'm a I'm a road warrior. Yeah. But we went to so we left Kansas, went through New Mexico. We went to uh three national parks, and this is a work trip, so there's work in between, but we went to uh Petrified Forest in okay. like northeast Arizona, which was Incredible. Such a weird yeah. place. So Never many been. interesting things to see. Uh, we went to Saguaro National Park, really just for like an afternoon, more or less just to like check it off the list. But beautiful, really cool, uh, interesting. Did a bunch of work stuff. Drove up into Colorado, which... Uh, Colorado. 
Colorado. Colorado. It's like people here say El Dorado. Colorado. It's like a town close to me. Colorado. I've... Well, so the northeast corner of uh, Arizona, basically between like Flagstaff and this like four corners area. Remember on yeah. Breaking Bad when, uh, when what's her face? And so yeah. we drove by that, but like that entire section of state, it's like, it's like you're, it's not like being on an alien planet. It's like being on three alien planets. It's like you, you drive through like, I, I don't know. It's just so many different, like completely unique looking areas. Really? Yeah. It's something else. I mean, I was, I was just like in awe of that place. Yeah, I saw um, some of the you you posted some stuff uh, on social media like of that kind of the desert with the big like those tall little rock not tall little bit like the like those like rock mounds or whatever. Like yeah, but it's like all flatland, and then there's just like these like rock towers shooting up in the middle of the desert. Yeah, it's like all through there and around that area is like um, Indian reservations. I think for like the the Pima. And the Navajo tribes. So that was pretty you interesting mean to see. Americans, Casey. Right. First yes. Nations people. First Come Nations on. people. I feel like that's a good that's that's a, a good way of putting it. Look, whatever you whatever you like to be called, let me know. We, into this. we will we will refer to you <laughs> however you'd like. But uh yeah, just a, a, a wild environment. Went to Mesa Verde National Park, which is um, like qu- cliff dwellings and stuff like that carved into the side of the mountain by Native Americans. Uh, spent a whole bunch That's of time cool. in the San Juan National Forest and the Rio Grande National Forest. Fantastic. Great trip. Loved it. Um, brought home the ultimate souvenir. I am COVID positive. Are you serious? Yeah, I found <laughs> out today. You got that at work, dude. That was like your, a work present. They gifted that to you. Yeah, it could be. I probably is because after that, I really didn't talk to another person other than to like buy some Taco Bell. Yeah. <laughs> and they've all had COVID already. So it's probably uh, right. All right. Any symptoms? I've got like a little goop in the back of my throat, but that's that's it so far. Yeah. Hey, that's so, good. That's good. And you know what that goes to show you? What's that? Is that you just didn't even need the vaccine to begin with because it's clearly not a big deal. <laughs> Right. So. I'm like coming up on my point where I I think it's been almost six months since I got the vaccine. Yeah. Of course, well, now I'm out of booster. this chock full of uh, I know. antibodies. You need booster. Hey, have you had to have any fun? Well, you just found out today. So you, you haven't had to have any fun conversations with, with people yet about. I don't maybe you don't have the privilege of getting to have those conversations. I feel like if I got COVID, I would just end up being stuck in so many conversations I didn't want to be about. Oh, yeah. So oh, it's not a very big deal for you. Like, OK, I know where you're going with this. These are very leading questions. I don't want to be part of this conversation. That's <laughs> like I, I would I mean, not that I'll, I'll go two weeks without seeing certain people, but I wouldn't be able to wouldn't be able to completely pretend like it didn't. Happen. So now you yeah, can't go to work. I you get a quarantine. Yeah, I'm quarantining. I did. It's get not like, two weeks anymore. It's like 10, 10 days, five, what, seven. Day, what is it? Yeah, it's like 10 from the first symptom, which was like yesterday. Okay. So not too big of a deal, but like, um, I talked to my doctor and he gave me like, I'm on like a cocktail. It's like an antibiotic. Ivermectin. Not ivermectin. I'm on hydrochloroquine. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, Z-Pack, 
Which I okay. think is like a zinc succub su supplement. Succubent. <laughs> succubus. A zinc succubus. Okay. It's a zinc succubus, and it's going to suck the COVID out of me. Okay, nice. You, that's what so. he prescribed you a succubus in your sleep to suck the COVID out. Yeah. Perfect. Basically. Dude, you, know, you remember those little like things that you put in a baby's nose that you, the little ball that you squeeze and pull their, the boogers out? Yeah, dude. Of course I know those. It's like that, but through your pee hole. Oh, perfect. Oh, you just gave me a good idea. Um, dude, those things don't work for sucking boogers out of kids' nose. They, you know, this, is, <laughs> this is a little bit of a pivot, but I, I worked in a company that did baby gear for a while. And um, a retail company, I was a fulfillment manager there. And uh, it came out, a company came out with this thing called the Nose Frito. Uh, I guarantee anyone who had kids listening knows what it is, but it's basically a tube. And at the end of the tube, it, it goes into a cone to be able to, you know, suck the boogers out of the kid's nose. You put the tip of the cone in, but it's got this long plastic straw with a filter in it. And you put the other end in your mouth and you go, and you suck. No. The out. Yeah. And oh. it, it sounds awful. And before, like I, we ended up getting one. And before I got one, I was like, this thing's, a, this thing's a fucking joke. Like what kind of <laughs> like hippie ass parent shit is this? Get me out of here. And then when kids have that snot nose and you're trying to suck the book, it doesn't work. That thing works perfect. And I was afraid to do it for a while. Cause I'm like, you're going to taste the boogers through the booger air. Like the booger air is going to get through and you're going to just taste boogers on your tongue. Yeah. You don't, the filter works fine. You don't taste bugs. And <laughs> they, it, it sucks so many boogers out of your kid's nose and they don't really freak out. Like they do with those booger balls. Suck. Do you ever try it on yourself? Nose. No, no. I try like, it. Can on you, can you literally wife. like evacuate <laughs> your own nasal cavities? I feel like that would be worth it. No, try. I think this is a, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm trying, trying to see if you can uh, suck out your no, your mouth. I don't know if it and, creates a vacuum if you're inhaling, but uh, it's like a reverse some, trumpet player. Yeah, I don't know. It's worth a shot. You don't really need it as an adult because you know how to blow your nose properly. Uh, but you know, you could try. Maybe you ever get food stuck up the back of your throat? Like it goes, you swallow, and for some reason it goes up instead of down. Does that ever happen? To oh. You? Yeah, or like you're laughing and you kind of, while you're chewing and you kind of blow it through your sinus cavities or yeah, whatever. But you can feel it up in the back of your throat and it won't go up or down and it's just stuck there. You could like put it in your nose and blow and maybe it would shoot it down your throat. <laughs> <laughs> I want to okay. try now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's like okay. a throat flush. We get one. Yeah. We should get, I, I got to get one again. I don't know where mine is. Uh, I think we got rid of it after my kids were too old it's funny kids are not good at blowing their nose i don't know what age kids get good at it but like my four-year-old he has like he's been on and off sick for like it's been like four or five weeks he just hasn't Jeez. shed this like he's obviously had it's like he's been covid tested he's in school everything's fine but it's just this lingering no like stuffy nose so every morning he sneezes and just snot rockets down his mouth and chest and you're like into his hands it's like, oh, dude, come on, dude. It's Spider like stringing, but yeah, it's like stringing between his hands, and you're like, ah, oh, again. And he grins every time. He's like the biggest grin you've ever seen. Like, hey, <laughs> he thinks it's my so cat funny. Loki has that. <laughs> Same sort of thing. He's like perpetually stuffy. Just like Gross. we'll be petting him, and all of a sudden he's like, <laughs> like <laughs> that's like, 
<laughs> Dude, it always makes me think of uh, at our church growing up, there was this lady. I can't remember what her name was. But anyway, she's an older lady in her 70s, you know, and uh, she had been going to that church since she was a kid or something like that. And Damn. just the sweetest old lady there was, you know, but she would she would like ask some of the kids to sit with her sometimes, you know, and so I sat with her a couple times and she, like every church service from there forward, I noticed it, but it would be dead silent in the church and she would just do that like deep loogie snuff. Ugh. <laughs> Like over top, it didn't matter if they were praying. It didn't matter what it was. And from then on, like it was always like a noise that I heard. But then I knew, like, oh, it's Mrs. So and so. That's disgusting. Gail and the snail in it. (laughs) Gail and the snail. I only actually just I wouldn't have caught that reference except for I. um, I feel like you've made it before, but I did. I've recently revisited. It's always sunny. Oh, congratulations. That's and such a great show. I'm right about there, like with the Gale of Snail. <laughs> Spit it out or swallow it, Gale. <laughs> no. Okay. So what's something... been going on in your world? God, uh, I don't know. A lot. Oh, what, so I mentioned uh, the Renaissance Fair last week, and there was something that had also I, I wanted to bring up, and we had run out of time, uh, but... So we stayed in a hotel, uh, as I mentioned. You, know, you haven't even listened to the because you're a bad friend. Uh, that is but true. You, uh, our, our fire, our, the smoke alarm went off, and like the fire alarm went off at the hotel we stayed at. So we all had to like evacuate um, in the the morning we were leaving. So we just ended up leaving. Like we were all packed and ready to go. So it was great. But before that, uh, my wife, she's just getting ready, whatever. And I'm sitting in the hotel bed by myself watching. Uh, I, I was flipping through the channels and I found a televangelist and I Ooh. decided to like, I guess I'll watch this. Uh, and I was like a little ashamed. I'm like, you just kind of feel like an idiot sitting there watching a televangelist by yourself. And as soon as like I hear the bathroom door open, I change the channel like I'm in high school or in middle school watching something I'm not supposed to. Like, <laughs> like oh, the, the oh. sex scene in the yeah. Matrix just came on and you're like, oh. yeah. Yeah. Uh, but dude, it's just wild. It was on like uh, USA, which is a pretty like normal channel, right? Everyone knows USA. And why are they playing televangelist shit in the morning? And I, I was- don't know. Why do, why do cable channels surrender their Sunday morning airwaves to like idiots? Yeah. And then I was wondering if these people are paying them for airtime. I'm not Gotta sure. Be, right. It's like, like it's like a company airing an infomercial. I mean, it might get might get view like enough people watching it where there's some ad revenue, but I don't think they don't take ad breaks. So these they must be paying for that airtime. But it's funny because one of the things they get into and, and obviously we all know that as a nonprofit, a 501 c3 or whatever it is you are not you're not allowed to get political right you can't endorse a political party you can't endorse candidates uh and watching this televangelist go off their cadence dude that televangelist cadence is just a nightmare to listen to like yeah like you that's a learned pattern of speech Uh, you don't no one talks like that in real life and he's just doing his like he's going off on how just dark these times are, right? Reading Bible verses about the 
the the darkness of the coming time, signs of the times, all that kind of shit. And it's like, you know, a lot of these pastors now, a lot of these young ones coming up, these younger pastors, they don't want to take a stand and, and, and they're they're succumbing to some of these these the social issues of today. They're not standing firm on the Bible. They're they're giving way to culture and, and caving on some of these social issues. And you it pans to the audience. And surprisingly, there was like some younger people there, like late twenties, early thirties. It's like, why you're too young to to be still involved? Like you you should have left by now. Like that's a weird place for you to be. Uh, a lot of older people though. Everyone's just like, "Amen." Two hands up in the air, you know. And I'm like, that's so interesting because you got to be careful, right? If you're actually publicly airing that, you would think you'd have to be. I mean, I, I guess like Kenneth Copeland and all those psychopaths have got away with it for a long time, but it's like, you can see the way that they won't, they, they don't say anything specifically, but they say everything at the same time. And it's yeah. so annoying. It's like, ugh, you, you watch that and you're just, I remember, I remember as a kid, that stuff being insinuated and you knew what they meant and you projected certainly. But when you just like go back and watch televangelists now, it's, it's embarrassing. Like it's, uh, I don't know, man. I was just, and then Jill walks out and I'm like, Oh, oh I, I wasn't watching anything. I didn't <laughs> think she realized I was watching it. And she mentioned that we were all out to dinner that or all out to breakfast that morning. And all the people we were with, she was like, yeah. Right. And before we were talking about the smoke alarm, the fire alarm going off and Jill was just like, yes. Yeah. And right before that, Sam was watching a televangelist on TV. I was like, why'd you tell everybody? <laughs> no, I wasn't. I would never. I know. It's like, oh my god, it's so embarrassing to watch that. Yeah, show. it it is funny how like the the message is the same all the time. Like we were driving oh, yeah. through the middle of nowhere, and my truck is having like problems with the Bluetooth system, so occasionally it just kicks my phone out and reverts to AM radio. And yeah, same the thing. Like literally, what's that? It's the best kind of radio. AM. Oh yeah. And always a terrible signal. It doesn't matter. You could be next door to the studio and it's like a crackly, awful signal. I know. It's terrible. I don't understand. Radio is so AM dumb. radio still exist? I don't know why there are still AM radio channels. I don't know. I mean, Rush Limbaugh is gone, but as long as we remember the <laughs> things that he taught us, he'll live on in us forever. Like his, uh, his Christmas album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the in the eventual Disney adaptation of your uh, life story, I want you to have like a Mufasa Simba moment with Rush Limbaugh's ghost. Oh, <laughs> and I'll be Rafiki. Okay, I'm into it. Now he's whacking you with a stick. Yeah, I don't I don't understand why that message doesn't get it's got to be like there's obviously there's a core group of people that love that stuff and revel in it long term. Yeah, but and, and give their money to it. Dude, I was in that community for quite a while. Like I was listening to AM radio all the time and I was a big like Glenn Beck fan and stuff like that. And it, eventually I just got sick of it because it's the same thing over and over again it like especially when you're talking about politics because there's like a continual emergency happening 
according to those people. And yeah. it shifts like one thing ends and immediately like the next thing kicks in. It's like, oh, oh they're expanding yeah. abortion rights. Oh, ah, well, that's over now. So they're going to take the guns away, you know, and that's a perfect one to default. When things slow down, you can always bring it back to that. Yeah. Like you find some minor change in the laws of like some backwater in a state that you don't live in. And boom, it's like, this is the entry point. Like this is the slippery slope moment where eventually yeah. like they're going to legalize abortion up to three years old, you know, <laughs> if anyone's ever had kids, I'm sure the temptation is there. Occasionally. <laughs> like, oh, I, I, I still have, there's still a, there's still a reset button. I'm just kidding. I love my kids. No one get too alarmed. Uh, I think, I think there was like a bit of a shift in that, like a temporary shift after the election, like after January. I think so many people were just worn out with that stuff and like didn't like where people within their group took things. And it seemed like that really kind of died down for a minute because people are just exhausted. But then it always picks up steam again. I just don't why who's got the energy to continually invest in another potential apocalypse over and over and over again. You know, I know a handful of people who are still as conservative as they'll ever be that have said that they stopped watching the news like this, like Fox, they were Fox news people, but they're like, we just stopped because they wouldn't, I mean, they didn't watch CNN or you know, like that. We're a one them. America news network family. But now they, I, I know a few people have been like, we just stopped. Like it's exhausting. And I realized that I feel better when I'm not watching it. It's like, yeah, no kidding. That's what a lot of people have been trying to tell you for a lot. Like you can't, live in that constant state of like alarm and shock all the time. It's so exhausting for your body. You just feel yeah. like you're going to collapse after a while. Well, especially like having the, the last two years of COVID and all that stuff. Like I've, I've like, I've stopped listening to like several podcasts. I would do a bunch of podcast episodes over the past few months. Like I'll be midway in and they'll start talking about COVID and I'm like, I can't, I don't want to hear I don't want to hear about it anymore. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear the latest thing. Like, I just want to, I just want to think about something else for a minute. You know, I know. it's occupied so much of the airwaves and it is an exhausting thing to have to be a part of. I don't want to really talk to people about it. I just, it's, I know there's like that fatigue and then there's like the, you know, I know, I know a, a doctor uh, in the city near me that was talking about how, you know, their, their hospital's, opening those tents and getting emergency space because more people are being hospitalized for COVID and they don't have the room. And it's like, part of that's because people don't want to talk about it. Don't want to think about it. Everyone's kind of going back to things being normal for the most part in a lot of ways, but it's like, I don't know. Like it, if there's one thing that's definitely made its rounds, it's the like mental health toll that all this has taken. Like there's the physical risks, but then there's also the, the mental health, crisis that we have now of people just feeling fucked in the head at this point like it's a lot i think but you know i don't know i just like especially if you're a younger person i think we all went through a stage or are going through a stage where it's like your political opinions are a huge part of your personality and you know there's a lot of really important stuff and we talked about a bunch of that stuff on here we've had guests on to talk about you know the the prison industrial complex and like sexual assault on campus and all that kind of stuff. Like that's all very important stuff. 
But, you know, if your personality is tied in with this back and forth Fox slash CNN daily uh, uh, emergency level political discourse, like you got to get out of that. Like you've got to find something else to invest in, you know? Yeah, and I think so too. I feel like if you're like, it's, it's easy for a lot of people to be like, well, I have to know about this and more people ought to know about this and stuff. But the, the daily grind of like following whatever like headline story is happening right this second, like if you talk about the vast majority of those like big headlines and, and, you know, trumped up controversy and stuff like that a month later, they don't matter anymore. Like it's gone. It's over. It really wasn't that big of a deal to begin with. Like it's on to the next thing. I just think, I I mean, I, I feel like I regret getting stuck in that cycle for as long as I did, because it does not make you happy. It's unfulfilling. And you know, the vast majority about it, even especially like conspiracy theory stuff, whether it's true or not is almost inconsequential. Can you as a person do anything about it? Yeah. Or what you can, whatever not, you right? think you can do, just do that. Like, I mean, people aren't listening to you. Like the, I've had plenty of conversations with people who think I'm completely wrong uh, and about a lot of things and are maybe even disappointed in me. And I have to live with that. But it's like, None of those conversations have ever amounted to like there's only there's a very small group of people in which you can have conversations with where they will listen and you may be impactful or you will probably never know if you're impactful or your conversations with certain people mattered because people don't change their mind in an instant. And I dude, I remember there, that time in my life, like it was probably just like post college. I felt like I could go toe to toe with anybody. I would pick an argument, have that fight, argue with my dad about something. Uh, and now I'm like, I can't, I, I, that, that, that I get like that anxious pit in my stomach. The second anything comes up that could go sour. And I'm like, I don't, I know where this is going to go. It's going to end with, it's like, there's certain relationships that are only going to like last or only you can only have if you don't talk about certain things. Right. Cause you'll just end up like hating each other over stuff. And I don't know, like there are people who think that that's worth the, um, I don't know. I, maybe you can weigh it out in your own life and you can think that losing relate certain relationships is worth it. Uh, certain it ones to maybe being right. And that there may, there's probably lines to draw. I don't really know what those are. I think that's, what's really difficult about where we're at right now is like, there are so many lines being drawn and figuring out for you, which ones are the right ones to end relationships over. I don't know. I, I don't, I lean towards like, there aren't many lines worth ending relationships over. Uh, no, but I, other people don't feel the same way. Uh, and that's, I, I don't know, That's I guess that's for them to decide on their own personal health and well being. Uh, but it's, I think it's the, tough. It's weird. And it's an awkward time in, in I just our world with the political zeitgeist with the, your ability to get whatever information you want to back up whatever belief you have. And you can see it everywhere all the time. I don't know. It's like we're at an epistemological crisis at this point. (laughs) I think, I think it's like where you draw the line on that issue, like where to where it starts to like, you know, purposely affect the relationships is usually more about like a person who won't stop bringing that up with you. Yes. You know, and like, 
I think that's a thing that's really hard and it's not something that I've mastered yet by any means, but like I'm trying to consciously establish boundaries in some of those relationships, you know, and I think it's way better to establish those boundaries, even though it's awkward and sometimes it's going to, you know, you're going to have screw ups and stuff on both sides of that. Like it's way better to be like, dude, look, we, we don't agree on this and neither one of us is convincing the other of anything. Like I really, I just don't, I don't want to talk about this when we're together. Okay. Let's just set it aside. We don't need to talk about it. I know where you stand. You know where I stand. There's so many other things that we could focus on. And like, it's getting to the point where it's hard to be friends with you because I just dread this interaction that we're having right now. I don't want that. I want to be able to enjoy your company. I want you to be able to enjoy mine, you know, and some people are not going to be able to do that. But I think a lot of people especially, you know, you reach a certain age, I think it's easier to, to recognize those, the value of those boundaries. And like, those are the relationships that I think are worth like putting a little more effort into and, and keeping those people close rather than just, well, we don't agree. So we can't be around each other, you know? Right. Yeah. There was a time as recently where a, a person I was talking with brought something up like that it was just like it was a total conversation derail it was clearly a hijacking of the conversation to to be mad about whatever they were mad about uh that i clearly don't agree with i think they're angry about something that's pretend or make believe a real thing and it was like i all i I said was why did you just do that (laughs) it's like it's like what i was like why did you do that like why did you we were having a conversation about our lives and what's going on with them and, and you just stole it to make it about you and whatever you wanted to to be about. And I, I was like, I just, just, I don't, I don't see what the point of that was. I don't know why you would do that to this conversation. And it was awkward as shit. And I, I kind of like walked off. And then it was like, yeah, no, sorry, yeah, you're right. And then we kind of found the conversation again. And it was weird, but it was worth it. I, I'm not great at that. It's like hard to call it out in the moment because. It can turn into an argument, especially depending on yeah. the type of the person that you're having the conversation with. Uh, but trying to, especially with kids, dude, with us, with Jill and I having kids that there's certain things I just don't really want my kids being around. Like, you know, there's certain, they're not going to adapt a lot of it now, but there is plenty of stuff that I think could enter into the, my kid's psyche through being around uh, certain types of beliefs and conversations and my kids pick up on stuff. They pick up on the stuff that Jill and I talk about. And I'm like, I, at some point, do I have to have the, I, at some point I feel like I have to have those conversations with people. About, I don't want, I don't, I specifically do not want you teaching my kids this or that. And usually pertain to, you know, Christianity, uh, certain concepts that some people might think are biblical uh, that would be very troubling to me if I found out that they were teaching my kids, even if it's just through like through media or literature, like that they think is benign or helpful um, not to get super personal, but I don't really know a way around it. And it, I, I even my mom had mentioned, um, Oh, I could like, bring. Hey, well, this is a good transition into uh, our guest here. Cause we're going long <laughs> anyway. So my mom mentions bringing out, I, I should, find they are like old adventures and odyssey tapes uh, for the kids 
And I didn't say anything at the moment. I was just like, I don't know. That's all I said. It's like, yeah, I don't know. And I don't know that she really heard me or paid any attention. I didn't, I, I really didn't push it. Uh, but I was like, I don't know if I want them listening to that. I don't know what kind, I don't, I don't remember it enough to know what kind of messages or ideology it's communicating. Um, and that is a weird thing. That's a weird conversation to have. It's like, I don't care. Whatever my parents want to believe and may, whatever beliefs they want to maintain when it comes to their Christian faith, is, I'm not that worried about it until it starts like affecting their relationships to other people. Uh, and if that was the case, like for the most part, like it hasn't affected their relationships with any of their kids. It's not my siblings, not me. Uh, so like to just be like, I just don't want you. I don't want my kids to listen to that. I don't want them to absorb that messaging. It might sound a little offensive to them, but they're also my kids and I can make those choices. Yeah. Well, it's like when we were growing up, that was one of the few like acceptable quote unquote acceptable like forms of media like of that variety yep. that you could listen to and you know that's not the case anymore there's tons and tons of stuff you know you can give them an audio book or you can show them yeah, a tv show so i'm sure there's kids now. podcasts like yeah there is we, yeah. we don't need that we don't need this and like i i mean i suppose if you vetted them first which would be annoying then like i don't want to do that i don't want to go back and listen to hours worth of adventures and odyssey tapes despite the fact that i would get to listen to 12 year old 10 year old 9 year old dave griffin <laughs> yes <laughs> let's go ahead and, and get this we seamlessly <laughs> roll into the yeah. into the intro our guest coming up is dave griffin uh it's most people who grew up Christian probably know him better as Jimmy Barkley from Adventures in Odyssey. Uh, he was one of, if not the longest running member, a uh, cast member on, on the show. He, he did about 10 years on it. And uh, it was, it, it was interesting to talk to him about what that was like. Uh, you know, his story, his time on the show, he has a lot of, um, He's had a lot of difficult mental health struggles throughout his life that have put him in difficult situations. Uh, we learn a little bit about how focus on the family through adventures and honestly didn't um, you know didn't really believe in residuals or fair pay or that like it, it it's not anything out of the ordinary. It's nothing that you even probably wouldn't expect it is a ministry. an organization like that. Yeah, exactly. It's a ministry. <laughs> Therefore everyone involved has to get paid in pennies uh, and just bragging rights for how many chairs they could stack all at once uh, or how many stacked chairs they could carry all at once. That's, that's as good as any payment telling a bunch of girls in middle school that you, you carried four chairs in each arm. So uh, I'm going to tell Dave, me I'm the sword drill champion. <laughs> Dave's just one step above all of us. And he was Jimmy Barkley. So it was, uh, we cover it, I think at the top of the episode, but we, we had tried to do this with him and we had to, we lost audio on it. It was our kind of our first big, uh, podcast kerfuffle. And now we were able to reschedule and re-record, uh, which was great of him to be able to do that. So I don't know if you have anything to add, Casey, before we go ahead and introduce our guest. Well, we introduced him before we cut to the interview. I'm really terrible at that. Still, we've been doing this for <laughs> no, a just, fucking uh, year, dude, and I'm still just like babbling on and getting my words wrong. <laughs> oh, 
only thing I'd say is uh, if you're not in the Discord, you should jump in on that. It's a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of great uh, little side conversations and stuff like that 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 go on as a result of being in there. Uh, I do want to give a shout out. This is late, but uh, we have uh, a, a thread on the Discord called Communal Self Promotion. I wanted to shout out a new buddy of ours, this band. It's called Bitter Truth, and you can find their first EP on Spotify. Uh, really cool, like Michigan hardcore band. Definitely worth checking out. And if you haven't yet, go visit our our very first sponsor, Captain Cecil's Coffee. Uh, it's great stuff. I've tried three or four different varieties now. Uh, a couple of our friends have have gone in on it, and a couple of you guys have bought some. And it's it's great coffee. It's great cause because it supports local lighthouse, uh, you know, upkeep and maintenance and things like that. And you know, let's face it, almost all of you drink coffee. Um, yeah, you can go to Walmart and buy a bag of Starbucks and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly fine. But, you know, supporting some of these small businesses and stuff, especially one that has a great value system and stuff. It's, it's just a great way to, you know, use your money to support people like you. I think Captain Cease is a great example of that. And Hey, if you're going to be buying coffee anyways, why not give Captain Cecil's a try? I think you're going to love it. And they've got some cool merch over there too. So and that being art. said, I want to shout out the art. Uh, the art comes out great. All the, all the pack, all the labels on the uh, coffee has very appealing to the eye. I got to go ahead and shout that out too. It is pretty cool. Is he going to do like a, a Halloween city uh, day after Halloween, 30% off? <laughs> Like bloody bags of spirit coffee Halloween. or something. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's spirit of like spirit Halloween. All everything's forty percent off all the time until that store disappears for another eleven months. I would rather have COVID than go to Spirit Halloween. I hate yeah. it. I hate it. I hate it. It's like the worst place ever. Just the most cheap, nasty junk that stinks. All of it. I hate it. <laughs> and you would you would get covid if you went there probably trying on one of the masks that 150 other snot-nosed children tried on and didn't buy right before you got there yeah it's a great time to uh put on that plastic mike myers mask and just lick the mouth hole yeah <laughs> i remember my parents <laughs> we need to get out of here but i'm just gonna say this i remember my parents when you go to like a CVS or some shit where they had those rubber masks putting it on. They're like, get, get that, take that off right now. And you're like, what's the big deal? It's a Halloween mask. You're supposed, and like now the idea of putting that on, if I saw my kids do it, I would go fucking banana, dude. It's disgusting. <laughs> my parents were right about that. It smells like the inside of Paul Ryan's gimp suit. <laughs> <laughs> and on that Okey-dokey. note, okay. <laughs> Enjoy our conversation with Dave Griffin. Sam, temperature's dropping, leaves are changing. I think we're well into the fall season. Yeah, uh, well into it. And the fall season where I live in New England is a premier destination point. Uh, It's a lot of people's favorite time of the year here. And it also happens to be my favorite time of the year. And what's better on a crisp fall morning than a great cup of coffee? If you're a coffee enthusiast, you're going to absolutely love Captain Cecil's Coffee Roasters. 
Captain Cecil's is a Massachusetts-based artisan roastery born out of a love for the sea and a passion for great coffee. They offer a rotating menu of carefully crafted single-source roasts and blends tailored to the season. From the light, fruitful notes of empty gold to the nutty banana bread warmth of Nobska, there's bound to be a cup of Captain Cecil's that's perfect for you. Empty gold is honestly uh, an incredible coffee. Uh, That and another one of my favorites is 19 Miles at Sea. Uh, 19 Miles at Sea is a little on like the kind of caramel nuttier side. And then uh, Empty Gold is a bit on like the fruitier side. And I, I, I personally just don't like dark roast. I like a light to medium roast coffee. And those two are fantastic. The huge hits at my house. And we would have friends over and I, you know, brew a pot of coffee and everyone raved about it. It's a big hit. I mean, they're just absolutely delicious. Nobska's definitely been the hit at my house. We absolutely love it. On top of great coffee, Captain Cecil's is committed to caring for the beautiful Northeastern shore that they love so much. 10% of all sales go to organizations like the American Lighthouse Foundation, who ensure the preservation of the historic New England coastline. So if you're ready to welcome that autumn breeze with a warm cup of Captain Cecil's, visit CaptainCecil'sCoffee.com. Enter the promo code GrowingUpChristian at checkout to receive 10% off your first order and free shipping on orders over $50. That's CaptainCecil's.com, promo code GrowingUpChristian. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're here with our guest, Dave Griffin. Uh, Some of you might know him a little bit better as... Uh, Jimmy Barkley and Dave, we thank you. Uh, thanks so much for hanging out with us, man. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Nice for to have me. you back on uh, and for our listeners. So just to clear the air uh, up front, we actually had Dave on a little bit ago and mm-hmm. we had to take a break in the middle of the recording uh, and we ended up having there was a horse in my yeah. yard. There yeah, were there horses a... involved. There, as I recall, <laughs> there were horses involved. Yeah, Casey I've you since recently... learned that the horse is Cricket. That's that's her name, and she's yeah. a rascal. Yeah, is, you I'm, recently I... retold that story. Uh, you, you mentioned it because you were wearing your Christian Nightmare shirt, and the old lady who started talking to you about why the heck you were wearing that. So yeah. that was uh, we were in the middle of recording in a, this episode uh, with Dave, and then uh, we lost the whole second part of the audio. So. We are here with him again. So we are, Dave, we really appreciate you doing it again. I know there's probably some awkward like rehashing the same things. So I, I mean, just it's, the fact that you're up for that is super dope. Yeah, no, but for sure, for sure. And I just want to make sure what the horse is secured this time, correct? We've, it's dead. No, the got, horse died. Oh, the we've, horse was shot. Okay, that's fine. I'm starting well, to think that the horse is never secured. Okay, okay. I just, I want to understand, you know, kind of what the situation is before we get rolling. Yeah. Uh, but yes, thank you for having me and, and let's dive in. Yeah. So, okay. Let's go ahead and just start with who this, is, I mean, let's start at the beginning, the Dave Griffin mm-hmm. story. Um, because obviously spending the number of years that you did with Adventures in Odyssey, uh, mm-hmm. organize, I mean, a program run by one of the most prominent Christian organizations within evangelicalism, for sure. sure. Focus on for the family. Sure. Uh, there's obviously a lot going on there. So, Let's go ahead and um, I don't know. Let's let's start with how you grew up, uh, the the type of world you grew up in, sure. as far as Christianity goes, and how you found your way into adventures and adventures Odyssey. and Odyssey. Sure. So i i was um, I was born in Florida, and I I mentioned that geographically. You know, the first ten years of my life were spent in Florida and Texas, 
And I think, you know, folks will understand some of the, the cultural elements of that. Um, as a kid of the 80s, um, growing up in, in those environments at that particular time, uh, I was, when I was born, I was extremely underweight. I had jaundice. I broke my shoulder bone coming out and I spent the first week of my life in an incubator. This was a, a relatively new thing back in the late 70s. And that'll come into play later in the story. Um, but my mother was very religious, my dad less so. Uh, and my dad was just kind of like, all right, you know, do do what you need to do with the kids. It's good to put them in church. Um, and so, so your we, dad didn't go with you guys? Never, no, never, never. Didn't He, I think, did not enjoy his experience growing up. Uh, he grew up in an Episcopalian environment. Um, and so for him, church was much more like formal and uh, like Catholic light, you know? He needed like a Mr. Whitaker type character. Um, kind of, I think also, but like his family, it wasn't as, um, it just wasn't this heavy thing. It was, you know, whereas for my mom, you know, it was much more of a profound uh, conversion experience that she had had. Uh, I don't know all the details, but I think it had something to do with her being pregnant with me. Um, and then like, you know, me almost dying and whatnot. Um, but so grew up, you know, my whole life going to church multiple times a week. Um, you know, I can remember we would go visit my grandparents, you know, up in their lake cottage up in Michigan. And, you know, my mom would put us in vacation Bible school for the week, which would like infuriate me. Yeah. Um, vacation Bible school is a, it's, a wild it's experience. The, it's, What's the and, one? I'm going to derail real quick. What's the sure, one sure. craft you did in vacation Bible school that sticks out with you? <laughs> one time we did, you know what? I think my mom still has it. It was a, uh, it, it was an art project where they used, they took a bunch of matches, lit them on fire and then like smothered the box out so that you had these matches that like the heads were burned. And then we did this thing where, uh, made them into a cross. And so the burning effect gave it like a very interesting aged colored effect. It was actually very beautiful. Um, Sounds cool. But it was, yeah, it was, uh, you know, uh, let's make a cross out of burnt matches. Interesting. Uh, my favorite I'm was sure the one where you have like the piece of uh, ribbon, you know, and you put the little plastic beads on it and you make a <laughs> lizard. <laughs> like the instructions always showed that you had like 15, 30 different options, but nobody ever made yeah, anything no, but a lizard. No, no, no. no, it's uh, I. But see, I was a kid. I hated vacation Bible school. I never enjoyed going to church. I never I just did not. It, I it was a. It always felt like punishment to me. Like we just did school all week and now we have to like go do more school on the Sundays. Like my weekend, I don't even get a full weekend. Yeah. Um, and then when I was in the fourth grade, um, we had had a, a house fire and my dad was injured. And about a week later, my mom had a really weird uh, allergic reaction and almost died. And so there were these two massive events and I kind of had a breakdown what they would now understand to be like a mental health episode. But back then they didn't, you know, this is like 1986. Um, no one knew what, you know, what's wrong with this nine-year-old kid. Um, and so we, they transferred me from that school to a private school that my mom was teaching at a private Christian Berean style school. And so I've, and then and in my middle Florida or Texas, this was in Texas. Yeah. yeah. This is in Texas, and, yep. um, 
And so I've, I've had experience in the public school sector. I've had experience in the private Christian school sector. In my junior high was a, a private uh, Christian school experience. Uh, so my world growing up in sort of the, the evangelical bubble was pretty significant. Um, it, it's, I was definitely more in the evangelical bubble and then in the secular bubble, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mom was very conscientious about like, you know, what kind of television we watched, what movies we went to. Um, it was a pretty strict upbringing, spare the rod, spoil the child kind of thing. Um, was your dad the like, did he care as much? Was he, what was the, no, no, he, he really, I, you know, I, I, over the, it's that there was an interesting tension in my house growing up. Um, cause I think my dad just, didn't really had no interest in any of it and kind of rolled his eyes at all of it. And for my mother, Mm -hmm. it was this overly um, emotional thing that like drives everything that she does. And I can remember in my earliest years, you know, trying to understand and have, you know, arguments with her about like, well, do you love dad more or God more? You know, and the answer was always like, well, I love God more. Well, do you love me more than God? No, I love God more than you. And it's just like this very, hard things for like a six-year-old seven-year-old kid to wrap their mind around right like yeah is that healthy that too that's so funny i haven't you know like do like with even just interpersonal relationships with with my mom it's like Mm -hmm. there is this like hierarchy within evangelicals it's like you love oh yeah god and then you love your spouse and then Uh your kid and that was considered okay and then i I, so you'd be like who you love dad more than us it's like yeah but honestly like push comes to shove like you say it because it's the right thing but i mean if you ask me if i love my wife and my kids more like it's different and equal and if it's not you have oh that's weird you're answering that weird well (laughs) some of that you know the early dissonance that you get as a kid in that environment um you know that this notion that like dad's going to hell because he doesn't believe what mom believes yeah, and like that's, that's gonna mess a with you. Dynamic for sure. That is gonna Who's mess you? with you and mess with your your concept of of then then you go into this evangelical uh, you know Southern Baptist environment and everything that they're telling you is spoken as though it's the truth and you can't question mm-hmm. this truth. So when these truths are reinforced in your daily life, it, sometimes these things can be very confusing and when you're a child you don't you know you don't know how to discern you know what is true versus what isn't you trust the adults in your life and and right. when they give you conflicting messages it's very confusing um and so that was kind of you know I, I would say i grew up in basically your typical you know for my age i'm 44 uh i was 10 in 1987 so and i was a kid of the 80s you know cold war kid for sure um and all the things that that means of being a Christian at that time in that place and space and in the Southern part of our country, um, you know, which is the Bible belt for a reason uh, that part of, of our nation is very rooted in a lot of these practices. Um, Question for you. Mm-hmm. You remember growing up in that time period and Colborne and all that kind of stuff. I'm curious as to like, do you remember a person who there was chatter about might be the Antichrist, and who was it? Oh goodness! I mean, well, it depends. You know, that Ronald Reagan was considered the Antichrist. Uh, then the big name that, of that era, as I recall, 
was a character, a woman by the name of Madeline Murray O'Hare, who is this very famous atheist. I don't think she was ever referred to as an antichrist. Um, but mine was uh, like, like they would talk about like, well, Prince Harry's popular. Maybe he's the antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> it's always something, you know, it's always these weird interpretations. Uh, what I will say is that when you ask that question, my first, my immediate reaction is like, which one? Because in that culture, there's, there's like, it's always, oh, Obama's the Antichrist. No, 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 wait, it's this person. No, it's this guy over here. It's always some shifting target, right? I remember yeah. that's Obama's stage. Right. He's, you my, know. he's my personal Lord and Antichrist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in the 80s, you know, this was like a hot time for uh, a lot of like, you know, right-wing paranoia. It's really where it was all born was kind of during that, that time period. Um, and yeah, so I, I would say I grew up like your typical, typical white privileged American kid, uh, grown up in, in a suburb outside of Houston. Um, I'm going to churches that everybody in my neighborhood is going to. So this is, it's more than just like a family thing. It's like the entire culture mm -hmm. of my neighborhood. Yep. Um, you know, when someone new moves in, oh, which church do you go to? Hey, you should come to our church. Um, that you know, these are really the cultural centers of of life in these places. Um, There's a church wars going on. Everyone, yeah, 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 yeah. The best. Maybe their friends want to come to their youth group because it's right. You know, stay away from better. those dirty Methodists, and the Methodists are like, for the love of God, watch out for the Baptists. You know, that'd be a good uh, TV show on uh, A and E or. Uh, TLC Church Wars. I'd watch that. <laughs> we are born to host that show. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I, I think we're living through it right now. Uh, so that was kind of you know I think for the era, I, what I experienced was very typical of the time. Um, sure, yeah. And then when I was ten, we moved out to Southern California. My dad got a job change or a promotion or something. He was in sales. The number one the reason families move because right. dad's got a different job. Dad's got dad's job, so we we headed out to California, and uh, and I was ten, and we could. T I had just come off of this sort of mental health breakdown. Um, I was very a high strung, stressed out kid. Things things that we understand now to be early onset mental illness. That just back in the day, I was just boy, that kid's on tight. What's wrong with them? Um, you know, very sensitive kid, if, you know, sensitive to, um, you know, if people were mean to me or something, you know, tears were never far from my world. Um, and so when we moved out to California, my mom was trying to figure out some, something that I could do. Um, I was very sad about this move. Fourth grade, I had all these best friends. I had, you know, I can remember like looking out the back of the van as my friends were like on their bicycles, chasing the van down the street as we're moving away and just the tears just flowing down my cheeks, you know, as you say goodbye to all of your friends for the rest of your life. Cause back then, if I wanted to, you know, talk to any of my friends, it was like a 10 minute, $10 a minute phone call. Right. Long uh, distance. <laughs> right. Mom, pen can pals. I make a long distance phone call? You did that already this month. Um, yeah. yeah pen pal. You had to be pen pals. Did you, no, did you stay pen pals with anyone? I tried for a number of years, uh, and then just over time, you know, by the time we were all teenagers, it it petered out. Um, and and two, you know, at that time, like it, that was a really big change coming from Texas to California. So a lot of the cultural changes that start to take over, you realize, like, 
uh, you know, we would go back and visit a couple times. And the life that my friends were leading was so different than mine that just a lot of that connection fell apart. But so we get to California and uh, my mom had noticed that I had enjoyed doing some school plays. And she found uh, a local Christian, of course, it had to be Christian, Christian community theater um, that was run by a woman uh, who, you know, her passion is, her name is Martine Craig. Her passion of the Christ. Yeah, she her stuff is, you know, arts and service, you know, let's use performing arts as a way to glorify God. And so I got into this. The first play I did was with Johnny Erickson Tata. And uh, then during the rehearsals for that play, I get she called about a dozen of us up one day and she's like, hey, you know, go to this place for an audition. And I what grade no is this idea. again. So this would have been November, uh, probably October, maybe September of 1987. So I'm in the fourth grade, and my parents had okay. decided to hold me back a year so that I would de-stress, which just crushed my spirit. Um, I was like a straight A student. I was in gifted classes, um, but I was so high strung that my parents were trying to like take all this uh, stress off of me. Interesting. So they thought t- keeping you back would lighten like the school load and you'd be, that would like right. mitigate stress or something. Okay. Yeah. It Interesting. backfired massively because what it taught yeah. me was that if you do a good job, it doesn't help you. Yeah. A for uh, effort, you know, they tried. And sorry, kid, you have to go back <laughs> and, you know, like you, you got A's, but you essentially failed. Right. That's the best uh, part about childhood trauma is it was uh, generally because of parents trying. So yeah, I'm looking no, forward to finding out what my kids absolutely hate me for when I'm there. You, oh, you are going to wreck them so hard. I say this as a parent, like one of the best parts of being a parent is realizing your good intentions are going to cause future therapy bills. Um, at least maybe therapy would be free by the time my kids are that age though that'd be dope only if everybody votes for universal health care please please (laughs) I'm begging you Uh, because I need it Um, (laughs) so this would have been yeah 1987 so I was in the fourth grade again uh, which destroyed my confidence and really like that was where the depression stuff like started kicking in Um, so they say you know go to this audition and I don't know what I'm doing. I go to this uh, building in Pomona, California, and this was right as they were moving into their Pomona facilities, this place called Focus on the Family. Never heard of it. Know nothing about it. Um, 10-year-old kid. Uh, and they brought me into a room, and they had two or three pages of script and you know, a little tape recorder and a couple microphones, and it was a pretty janky setup. And they had me read. And the, the key skill set that I had, you know, if you're trying to make it into voiceover acting is I can read and make it not sound like I'm reading. Um, and so that was one thing, you know, when people ask about, you know, what does it take to be an actor? Read, practice reading, read all the time. Uh, I was an avid reader as a kid, you know, when, in school when like they would make break up like the text and like everybody has to read a paragraph and there's the kids that like really struggle with the reading and everybody just has to kind of like sit through it. I was the kid that they would give like the bigger paragraph to because, you know, I, I could be the workhorse of the class. 
Oh, that was um, the worst. When you when you're reading in school and they're like, you everyone takes a paragraph and you're looking at who's next and you're counting the paragraphs. Right. And you're like, shit, shit, shit. Oh no, no, I got the big one. <laughs> right. Whereas you know, if you've got like a learning disability and reading is a struggle for you, like, no, please give me the just give me like two sentences, please. Those poor, <laughs> you know, the poor kids that you know really struggled with that. But I, for me, it was a a, a skill set that I had. And, uh, I was always, a you know, my emotions are very much at the surface of who I am. I don't hide a lot. I, I mean, I do now more as I've gotten older, but as a kid, I was a very open and pretty kid. And so I could read and emote the way that they needed. Um, and so we get a call back. I don't know. This would have been the first week of November. Um, Hey, uh, we'd like you to come in and record. And man, I'm, I'm ecstatic. I'm high on a cloud. I'm, you know, 10 years old and I'm about to go do a professional recording session. And so I went and the building, what I realized now was the organization had been moving from one building to another. And where I had done the, the audition was in the new building and the first recording was in the old building. So the old building you walk through and like all the lights are off it's the, and it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon, all the furniture has gone. Like the uh, zombie apocalypse. No, yeah, it was totally weird. It was this strange thing. And then you enter into this um, this room, and it, there, it was the only time I ever recorded in a setup like this. It was like a table with five microphones coming out of it, like a spider's legs or something. And uh, sitting across from me is this guy. His, his name's Hal. Hal Smith something. I, I don't know. He's an old guy. I, I don't know any of these people. Um, and... We recorded the episode, and that was episode number two of Adventures in Odyssey. And I loved it. I didn't even realize I was going to get paid. Um, and then when <laughs> I found out I got paid, I was like, wait, this is cool. Did, um, did you even realize what you were like recording? Like, you they, Did you get like a breakdown of what was going on? Or was it just like you sat at this table, and they're like, these are your lines? It was, you know, I, my recollection is that as much as I knew was that I was recording a radio play. And okay. That's it. Yeah. So I, it, it was, uh, there was not a lot of understanding of, of any scale of what it was. And I also thought this was just a one-off thing. Like, um, and then I get a call back like two weeks later and they wanted me to come in and do episodes three and four. And then a month later, another call, you know, episode seven or 11 or whatever. And, and this just sort of kept happening. Um, and I love no it. conversation like, was, of like, this is what you do now. Like, had you heard the no, episodes no. as they came out? Were you aware of like, yeah, what so was kind of going on? They would, well, they would send me an ep- a tape. Uh, I would get this like bubble wrapped tape in the mail. Um, and that was really about it. And in the early days, like they, the turnaround time on those episodes was pretty fast. They were pretty much recording them editing them, adding sound effect beds and music beds. And then like, I would say the turnaround time was maybe a month, maybe even less than that, two weeks. I don't know. Cause it, I, it, I got the feeling definitely in the, the first year that it was almost a, and maybe this is a wrong vibe, but it felt to me like they were surprised at the success of it. Oh and yeah. That, yeah. That like, and that just then all of a sudden it was like, everybody was, running around like their hair was on fire or something like just you're in this constant state of like we need to make more content now and 
there was not, it was not the era that they have now where it's like, oh, let's write a bunch of episodes ahead of time. Let's record with a full cast for a week. Um, and then let's spend three months, you know, doing post-production. This was sure, yeah. the feeling I got at the time was like, they were doing two episodes at a time, two episodes at a time. And then as, you know, things spooled up uh, after we got the first dozen or two dozen episodes done, I think then they started to settle more into a groove, but they were trying to figure out like, do they have one writing team? Do they have two writing teams? Um, it's like when you don't know if you're going to be can like a show is going to be canceled. Yeah, and like, yeah. Hey, oh, for sure. Have like is a the- semi wrapped up ending at the end of right. season three because the viewers. Yeah, the, the, there was like yet. no thought really to like long term story yeah. lines or anything like that. It was, you know, even at a young age, I could kind of sense that this was like you know, like a Christmas gift that had just been unwrapped, like the wrapping paper still on the floor and they're putting the batteries in and, oh, wait, it works. Oh, this is more powerful than we thought it is. Um, and so, and, and two, it was like, you know, the character that I'm famous for, I, I never played for the first year that I, I was with the show. Uh, I played like, I don't know, half a dozen, seven, eight oh, other wow. characters. So yeah, like each episode was a different character. I'd be Freddie, I'd be Bobby, I'd be Mike, I'd be... Jeremy, I think, was a character I played. So they weren't um, even building a linear story at that time? Were these just no, all like one-off I, episodes? Yeah, like I think a, they a were just all one-off episodes to kind of gauge, you know, see, like, what audience reaction is to it. Um, and, but, you know, behind the scenes of, of what those calculations were, I have no idea. Like, they, I was never privy to any behind-the-scenes information ever. I was just a, a hired gun to come in and play right. parts. Um, and then about a year into it, uh, as my recollection goes, I showed up one day and the thing that was very different was in this episode, I had a family and in the prior episodes I hadn't, and they tell me like, all right, this is your new character and this is it. And I, I was a little bummed out cause I liked doing different characters, uh, as somebody who enjoys acting and the idea of only having to do one character seemed really boring. Um, but of course, now all these years later, you look back and you think like, man, I got to play a single character for a decade, which in acting is like rare. Yeah, um, no kidding. And I think did they recognize- for the character. So, sorry, for the first, like when you said the first year and you did all different characters and uh, did you get like different bios for the characters you're playing or did you kind of have to just nah. read them as you read them? No. Or and you- in fact, one of the unique ways that they record is like, and sometimes this can come up to bite you um, when, you know, is I would never know what the episode was before I arrived. Never got the script ahead of time. Um, I do have a memory that there was a kid, I think that struggled with uh, some reading issues and, and they were given the scripts ahead of time. But one of the things that happens with actors when you get scripts ahead of time is you can tend to develop a cadence um, where you'll, you just sort of like you hear the musical rhythm of the line in your head and you can never break that. And so then when you're recording with the full cast, if you have rehearsed your lines prior, it's going to come out rehearsed and not feel organic. And one of the really beautiful ways that they record is as a full cast. Typically with voiceover work, you're recording in a booth by yourself. But the thing that they always wanted in this uh, in this show was the spontaneous interaction between cast members and actors. Um, and I think it gives a much stronger performance. So, but you would have no idea. I would never see a script until I showed up into the studio that morning. They would hand me my 30 hmm. pages and a pen 
and I would go and mark my lines. Sometimes I wouldn't even read the script before I would get into the studio just to keep it totally fresh. Like I'm reading the line as though I'm saying these words for the first time. Um, and so, so if no, somebody there's never is, any, if, if somebody's like a, a person that can't react and read and, and apply like emotion and, and stuff like that to the line, like in the first couple of tries, they probably don't last very long, I would imagine, right? Because you start probably. holding up production. Well, you will. You would be able to pretty much suss that out in the uh, audition. Uh, you'll because, like, and I, I years later, I had the opportunity to audition or be somebody's uh, audition scene partner when they were auditioning for the show, and you can tell right away whether somebody has that initial skill set or not. I think the odds of getting into the studio especially in the later years um, without having that skill set is almost impossible. In the early years, it was more likely because they were struggling finding kids. And so a lot of the kids were like, you know, Oh, Hey, there's a kid that goes to my church that, uh, you know, was really good in the Christmas pageant. You want me to ask her to come in? Sure. They, they auditioned my brothers. They were they, dope in those VBS skits. Those were. Right. Oh so yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> um, and so I, they were really desperate for kids early on. And I'm sure they were asking like all the folks on the family staffers, like, hey, can your kids come in? And I think, you know, looking at it now, I think that was where they really kind of struck gold with me was that here was this kid, 10 years old, who loves to act. And I did. I, I absolutely. It was the way some kids pick up a baseball and like their life is set or, you know, you ride a horse for the first time and you know that you're into horses or, uh, or sit on a tractor or a fire truck or whatever. For me, acting was it. Like once I, once I knew that I could get on stage and be someone other than myself for an hour, like I was set, like, this is awesome. Um, and so they saw that there was a talent in this kid and I, I created this character for me, um, and built a family around this character. If I can be so arrogant as to suggest that, um, as a way to tell now they were starting to think long-term about the show and like, Hey, we can, you know, have a, a character here where we can deal with a lot of family dramas, which most of the people that are going to be listening to this show are little kids and families, right? Siblings arguing with each other, you know, respect your mom and dad. Um, How many times so, can the kids find a, the random kids find a pack of cigarettes and then have to decide what to do. <laughs> <laughs> the cigarette episodes were my favorites, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy and Donna smoking cigarettes behind the school. Um, oh, yeah. Jimmy has a brown a paper bag under know. the porch. It has funny <laughs> magazines where people don't wear clothes. <laughs> uh, why, why does Jimmy have needle tracks in his arm? Um, <laughs> <laughs> this guy dark sorry sorry took a quick dark turn no i dark. love dark this uh, is great so jimmy steals so a then, prescription pad yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah they didn't have vape pens back in the day man um but so yeah well, so then, i wonder yeah. what they're tackling in that show now is it still going on oh yeah oh yeah 900 yeah, they gotta be episodes. tackling vape pens or edibles? Uh, I bet someone grabbed their parents' edibles by this point. Yeah, I would hope, you know, <laughs> that sounds like something Eugene would do. Um, pro Eugene's probably microdosing LSD um, <laughs> with all the other tech bros. Um, yeah. But uh, but so, yeah, that was that was basically it. it was uh, 
I, I was doing this show and I got this character given to me, gift wrapped and uniquely, I, I was the only, I believe still, this is true, 35 years later, um, I believe I was the only male actor kid that was ever kept after my voice changed. Um, they kept oh, wow, me, yeah. I think my voice changed around 12 or 13 and they kept me another seven years. So I, I recorded with them for 10 years, solid, uh, from the age of 10. I think they finally wrote me out when I was 20. Um, wow. And that's pretty I, that's wild. It. I mean, cause so they really had to like grow. I don't, I'm not incredibly familiar with mm -hmm. the, you know, the trajectory of the show. Like we had sure. the cassette tapes we would have. Right. Right. <laughs> They animated that as like a couple of one-off like episode, like animated mm -hmm. episodes, didn't they? Okay. Yeah, I, I auditioned those. for a couple of them. And um, <clears throat> so I, like I would catch them, but not mm -hmm. enough to like follow any sort of sort of like linear story. So if you're on mm -hmm. it that long, you uh, do they do other characters age? Do they progress so more no. character? So, the other, to, so there's like a, a an inside joke in the show where one of the main characters is this character, Connie, played by yeah. the wonderful Katie Lee. Um, well, Connie's supposed to be a teenager. And the part that they and because Katie's voice never changes, like she always sounds like she's 11. Um, she just has one of those magical, like, you know, voiceover voices that you know, d defies her age. And like the woman who played Bart Simpson. Yeah, 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 for sure. Nancy Cartwright. Um, so the problem with Connie and Jimmy and there's there's episodes where Jimmy has a crush on Connie but then like my voice changed and it, that, was pants, written, that was written into the show um, where like I go through puberty uh, so you know that okay was, yeah so so and then my character aged beyond Connie and that never made sense and I, that was probably one of the reasons they wrote me out of the show uh, other than the fact that I was starting to become a mental health liability to them. Um, <laughs> All but those I, I think they, threads about right, the stories yeah. and the characters are like, they're starting to pick so, up on this. And uh... so, uh, so yeah, so they, I think at this point, I think her character is probably maybe graduated high school finally after 35 years. I'm not sure. Uh, but my character <laughs> clearly, like they decided to use this moment when my voice changed to, um, educate kids about growing up um so i got to have the indignity of my puberty uh, experience uh, broadcast to the entire evangelical world um, <laughs> and i uh, kind of wonder if uh if dobson did have a hand in the connie situation like he's <laughs> like don't you just wish they could stay teens forever i'm not gonna touch that one <laughs> what was the episode like when it was uh when uh jimmy learned about masturbation for the first time i, I you know haven't recorded <laughs> it yet or maybe it got lost in the archives not sure what um, you need to that. do is create like a uh what you need to do is create like a a, a mock version of adventures and odyssey with like with those kind of things in it. So, you like know, a moral there... oral was to, uh, to David and Goliath. <laughs> we need that for Adventures in Odyssey, I think. Yeah, you remember when Macaulay Culkin did that, like, uh, dark short film based on Home Alone? Yeah, oh, no, I yeah. never saw it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a little rough. He, like, killed the uh, 
the burglars, if I remember nice. right. Nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, All right, we'll shop we'll that after. Uh, we'll figure out how to get that made. Let's we'll, workshop we'll, that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll table let's it for now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's kind of the basic, you know, story of how I got into the show and, um, and then uh, was on it for quite a long time and uh, was then unceremoniously written out of it. Um, but it was a great experience and I enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, yeah. What was the experience kids. of, um, yeah. What was the experience of, so you said like, you know, you get written off of it. It sounds okay. So you set it up uh, at the top of like, you know, you didn't always know when you're going to get called back. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it sounds like things got more consistent. Did you have more of a consistent schedule? Uh, and then mm -hmm. when you got kind of written off, how did that like, there was never a heads up ahead of time or anything like that. So yeah, so there was never a consistent schedule. You never knew really if when you went into a studio if that was the last time you were going to be in or not. And when my voice changed, there was like a like a year or eighteen month long hiatus that they took. I think as there as the organization moved to uh, to Colorado. Um, so by the time they came back, we were recording in Burbank. Um, but uh, yeah, never had a set schedule, never knew when they would call. And that was one of the things that was frustrating was, uh, for me, this was the best part of my life at that time. Uh, parallel to all of this, I was starting to, I, I was sad all the time. I couldn't figure out why. Um, I was a really troubled kid. Um, not so much with like getting into trouble, but just, you know, my brain was sort of a wreck and I hated school never fit in there. I was a great student, but I just never, I, I didn't like it. I didn't feel like I fit in with my peers at all. And also I had this thing where like, I get to go work with adults and not just like work with adults, but like I'm working with people who are literally the best in their industry in the world. Um, you know, every Saturday morning cartoon you're working with, like, oh, this is the dude that you seen Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, that's him. Uh, oh, no, sure. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Katie Lee. One of my favorite shows growing up was a cartoon on Nickelodeon called Muppet Babies. And my fa <laughs> favorite character was Rolf the dog. Well, Katie Lee, who plays Connie, is Rolf. And like Holy to find shit. that out, right. And to find that out when you're 12, you're like, what? What the fuck? Dude, like, this, I is, get this has been like a, a conversation point on this is important lately. <laughs> they've been they've been doing like Muppet Babies versus uh, uh, Rugrats. Oh, Muppet Babies all the way. Which uh, Get out of here like with that Rugrats shit. Well, <laughs> it is, Rugrats is a very different show. Because like, it was later. Like, Muppet Babies oh, yeah. is a bit older than M Rugrats. Muppet Babies, I, I, when I was nine years old, my friends and I would watch Muppet Babies, and then we would try to memorize the songs, and then we would fight over who got to be which character afterwards. <laughs> so, like, I, And this is when I was living in Texas, before I ever came out to California. So I... I very clearly remember that show. And when I found out Katie was Rolf, like my jaw hit the floor. And so you, that's that, cool. I, I and, it, that. and it was like, you know, Hal Smith did Beauty and the Beast and like just somebody was in it. This was right at like around the time when uh, Little Mermaid came out, when Disney was going back into their like second renaissance of, of uh, animated films. Will Ryan plays the little seahorse and like there's Will standing right in front of me. and. I learned really quickly that these people were great at what they did. And so to that's, go from that. I didn't realize they had that many like in, like Hollywood insiders or whatever. Oh, it's, that's know. the secret of that show is like they yeah. basically, the, and it's, it's an interesting thing I've been meditating on 
you know, about sort of like white evangelicalism, they basically pulled all the actors from like their favorite 1950s shows. And which is a very like common thing in that culture. Like they, they still want television to be like the 1950s, like the good <laughs> old days, right? When, you know, people of color weren't on television. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like, so a lot of the actors were drawn from those, uh, uh, those places. And for a reason too, like these were the best people in the industry that did this. These guys invented live television. They invented a lot of these voiceover techniques and, you know, I'd been doing radio and vaudeville and, uh, you know, I'm 10 years old working with guys who are in their seventies. So, Man, you know, folks on the family must've like shelled out a lot of money to get this thing off the ground then. Nah, it's cheap. It's super cheap. It's really easy content to make. Uh, but to get time, these people involved, I mean, you don't 70, think that was 75 bucks an episode because one of the things that drew talent to this and I've, I've asked right some of the actors this over the years, especially actors whose um, lifestyles may have put them at odds or lifestyle is the wrong word. That's an antiquated word. Um, but let's say that certain talent who they were perhaps, living the homosexual lifestyle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> would have been at that's odds. What I think with, I'm, no, I don't know. I'm yeah, not, I don't know if that's no, what the situation you're, you're, was. I just, that's what I right think of when I hear lifestyle. For sure. No, you're in the right neighborhood for sure. And that's why I want to be careful about uh, not perpetuating misconceptions. Um, sure. And um, that's more of a note for me. Um, but that why would they work for an organization that's against who they are as people? And one yeah. of the answers I got 100%. back was like, well, no one else is making this content, this kind of content. So when you're a voiceover artist, and I mentioned earlier, it's a pretty lonely uh, form of acting. Most of the time you are brought in by yourself into a studio and you're doing uh, work for cartoons or you're doing narration for a commercial, like, you know, all those voices about, you know, describing Pepsi or whatever. Um, and most voiceover work tends to be pretty lonely and you don't get an opportunity to actually work with other actors. The way that they were recording with a full cast was unique at the time. And it was, it was something that had surely fallen out of fashion by that point. And so a lot of these actors were hungry for that experience again. And I think, I don't think Hal Smith was getting paid more than I was. It was 75 bucks an episode, but you did it because it's hard to find this kind of work. Uh, it's becoming more popular again, uh, but at the time, back in 1987, 1990, this was one of the shows. And in fact, it became a problem because the show wasn't union. And so a lot of people who were involved in the union had to hide their involvement with the show. Um, the most notable of that is Will Ryan, who eventually had to walk off the show and boycott it or, well, go on strike um, until they became a union show again, which is who, right. Who was that character? He plays Eugene. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So that was, uh, yeah, that was, he was making an industry strike that they needed to be a union show and they did. Uh, and finally they were once they wrote me out of the show 10 years later. Um, so, but yeah, it was like, they were able to get great talent because they were willing to pay studio session fees, which are pretty small. I mean, in the 10 years, 80 episodes I did, I would be shocked if I'd made more than 10 grand. Uh, which is insane oh when you think That's about it. So no, it, it, right? Isn't that crazy? Like, um, I think the most I ever got paid for a session pay was like 300 bucks. Um, 
And so no residuals. No, no, no. I guess I don't know what residuals even mean. I guess if you, if I go to theory, so in theory, a residual buy it on cassette tape. Yeah, in theory, residuals would be like yeah, every time they sell an episode or an episode airs somewhere around the world, and the radio stations are getting ad money for that, that your cast and crew who create that content would get, you know, some small payout. Yeah. and that's one thing that they don't do, um, which is, I think, pretty fucked up of a Christian organization. But it's pretty common in that publishing industry of, you know, of the Christian publishing world to like be like, why would we pay you residuals? You're doing God's work, right? Like, yeah, I mean, for do you have any I, I stacked a lot of chairs for uh, zero dollars. Right. So you're lucky you got something. Like, okay? Yeah. At least you got something, man. You know, meanwhile, like every Christian store I go into like around the country, like, Oh, Hey, there's an album. And like on the cover of all of them is this little character with a red baseball cap. I'm like, that's me. Like, and I, yeah. well, um, you should stop going in Christian stores for one. <laughs> How many study Bibles do you need, bro? <laughs> What's it, now was that industry standard for voice acting at the time like because i imagine if some of those guys were in winnie the pooh and beauty and the beast no, and stuff they, those I mean, guys no those those unions get residuals and so I think it was the union was show, the breaking point well even when this show went union i still think they're not paying residuals because like they started a, a streaming service none of us get any of that yeah, it's uh, like if course, you don't have to for everything prior to when the negotiation set up or something weird like that. Well, the, and I don't ever recall signing anything. Like, it's something I've looked into actually. Is like, can I go get thirty-four years of residuals off of these people? Um, uh, God, I can't believe I just said that out loud. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, I would. Uh, That's your evil if plan you're a lawyer out, out there, though. Yeah, I would like to get off yeah. of disability. Um, so <laughs> no. <laughs> So, um, like, is that part of what happened when they wrote you off the show? I mean, when the, sh- when the show went union or they saw the writing on the wall and realized, like, this is where things are going. Did they look at their character list and go, which one of these long term characters can we cut to avoid potentially so having I to pay out residuals? That's a that's a good question. I don't think that was a primary motivator. Um, what I think was more likely was so Hal died. How was an actor by the name of Hal Smith was the original Mr. Whitaker. He died when I was 17. Um, And then they really leaned on my character for a good couple years there. And then. Did you know him well from doing the show? Uh, Was that, was his Mm -hmm. loss something that affected you or is it you? Huge. Did you not really read lines? No, it hugely affected me. Hugely. Um, He was, he was like my grandfather. Let's see. Mm -hmm. So. A thing to keep in mind about all of this is I became very attached to this crew and this cast. Um, I was closer to them emotionally than I was to my own cousins or aunts or uncles. Or, you know, I saw Hal Smith more than I saw my own grandparents. Um, Katie Lee is like an aunt to me, you know, Chris Anthony, these people, like, I still love them to this day. Um, and when Hal died, I was a wreck. Um, and, we're about at the point where we'll start in on this start part of the story. Maybe this is a good segue. Um, but I, I had been diagnosed for a year at that point when he died. And when he died, I just was numb uh, for a couple diagnosed of years. Diagnosed with? Mental illness. So I had, okay. 
so all right so we'll jump into the this this part of the story um i had done three episodes called aloha oi and it's one of the few i think three part episodes they ever did this was the for me it was the pinnacle of my experience on the show i was working with like a full cast. A lot of the time that we did Barkley family episodes, I didn't get a chance to work with some of the other characters on the show because they kept a lot of the storylines very insular around this family. And so this was a show where like the Barkley family and this other family, the Rathbones, go to Hawaii and hijinks ensue. Um, and it was a fantastic experience in the studio. It was great. It was two full days. I never got to do that. It was usually like an afternoon or a morning. Sometimes you get to do a two-part episode and get to be in there for the full day. This was like two full days with Walker Edmonston's in there. Uh, just the, the cast was amazing. And the studio environment was just people were laughing themselves sick. Um, unbeknownst to people, I was suicidally depressed while the whole thing was going on and had been suicidally depressed since the, I was nine years old and uh, had had these problems arise uh, at the beginning of my story when I talked about how the house caught fire and my mom died. Well, there, you know, looking back on it now, there was an, what's called early onset. Uh, most people, when they go through mental health problems, it occurs usually when you're in college age. Uh, the second most popular time is when you're in your like 40s and 50s. As you're going through these like hormonal changes, your brain chemistry changes uh, in life. So post-adolescence or, you know, menopausal time. Um, and <clears throat> I had always been having this like underlying struggle that there were, weren't really words for it at the time. Uh, but I was, what we would now understand, I was severely obsessive compulsive. I was severely depressed and um, subject to a lot of anxiety and panic and those kinds of problems. But you learn to mask these problems early on. And this mm -hmm. is probably what also like helped me as an actor is that I was really good at faking that I was fine. Um, and it, it, it presented problems then when I got sick because my folks would be like, I don't get it. He seems like this happy, shining kid, you know, this beacon of American Christianity. Look at this blonde child. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, but I, I always had like a lot of, you know, really disturbing thoughts that I could never get rid of. I had a lot of hurtful ways of viewing myself. I can remember being called into a principal's office in the third grade because I had drawn a picture of me cutting my head off. Um, and, you know, in 1985, like, what the fuck do you do with a kid like this? Right. Yeah. Those um, are alarming images for uh, teachers to find. Yeah. Like, oh, and they just probably, and, and I learned then, I was like, okay, that. don't draw that picture again. Don't do it. Like, no. And not that I got in trouble for it, but like people were worried and didn't know what to do. And, um, so I'd had this mental health break in the fourth grade. Um, and now, you know, it's gosh, what year are we in? So this would have been 93, uh, November 93. So I've been doing this for about six years now. And, we have this great experience in the studio, and then I have a suicide attempt afterwards. And I had been, I believe I'd been suicidal before it, uh, and that these episodes were sandwiched in between these two uh, events. And, um, but so my parents took me to this hospital in Anaheim, and it was an adolescent hospital, and I'm 
this had to be days after, maybe even the next day after recording. I'm, I don't, my time frame is a little messed up because, of course, it was 30 years ago. Um, yeah. Can and I, can I ask a couple questions real quick about sure, yeah, the yeah, timeline? In, in. I, I want to make sure I'm understanding this right. So you said it was six years into doing it, uh, and it was just mm-hmm. after this Aloha Oi story arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and what, and that was, a, is this before, um, Hal, uh, I'm sorry, Hal, um, had passed away. Yes. Because okay. that happened the next year. Uh, okay, at okay. that point I had been on a lot of psychiatric medication and that was, so you, you so Aloha Oi, you, you end up having a suicide attempt. This is six years in and, and you said you spent like 10 years on the show. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. where, Okay. All right. Cool. Right. I just want to. I just want to get the story arc no, straight sure. and, and make sure we have the timelines down. Yeah. No. For sure. And right. and the thing about this show was like it was my salvation a lot of the times. Where like I would be down and depressed. Well, and Jesus stuff. Christ is very sad to hear that. I'm well, sorry. yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and I would get a call like, "Hey, you know, we need you this next month." And all month long, I would just sit in class, just like I couldn't wait. Like, get me back in that studio. That's where I belong. It's the one place where things make sense. I know how to do that that work. I'm good at it. Um, and all this school shit, like, you know, fuck this. Like, so it, it was something I would sort of emotionally cling to because it, it, it was like a life raft in very, you know, stormy seas, so to speak. Um, and this time and the thing that acting always was for me was a great therapeutic escape. Not that I use acting as therapy, but it was a great break from having to be myself. Um, I could step into the skin or the mindset of another character and have freedom. And it was like a mental respite. Um, and all the skill sets of, you know, some of this mental health stuff, like faking my personality, like this plays really well in acting. And so I hid it for a long time, even for myself. Um, and then doing these three episodes, I, you know, in my troubled sort of frame of thinking, I know it's not, it won't make sense to people who haven't been suicidally ill. But at the time, as a 16-year-old kid, I was like, well, it's not, after these episodes, it's not going to get better than this. Like, and I don't know if they're ever going to call me again. And I just figured that was it. I reached the pinnacle of my life. (laughs) You know, this is the happiest I will ever be is in the studio with these people. And do I get to do this again in six months? Can I? And it was like November. All my suicide attempts happen in November. He said in early October. Um, oh Jesus! Well, you're consistent. If no one can say you're not consistent, so, and I appreciate you for that. Right. So, like, you know, I'm not feeling well these days as we slide into November. Um, so I'll be reaching out uh, at the end of. Thank November. you. Yes. Yeah. Check in with me. We'll just do a shoot part you a quick two, email. Right? Yeah. How you, how well, you doing, we'll, Dave? We'll do a part two, right? Um, <laughs> so, um, I in my sort of illogical state of being yeah i tried to check out and uh my parents took me to this hospital and you know i've replayed this story so many times in my head now i'm starting to question if it was even true or if i hallucinated it but my recollection is that i was brought into the hospital about 10 o'clock 11 o'clock at night and for anyone who's never been in this kind of hospital um it one of the first things you'll notice is that they lock you in it uh, then they take your shoelaces and your belts and they cut all the, you know, drawstrings out of your hoodies. Prison um, light. It's prison light. It absolutely is. You actually get jail time credit for it um, <laughs> because it is a lockdown facility. 
And oh, shoot. I laughed and now I realize like if you were no, I'm deadly going serious. to serve time after that because of a crime you committed, you would actually get jail time credit for that. So yes, not yes. a joke. Shouldn't have laughed. No, for anyway. real. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, uh, one time I was in legal trouble and being in the hospital covered my time. Jeez. Um, so it's, uh, you go in, you know, so you're, you go into like a room and everybody, there's like two people to a room. Uh, and so I go into this room, the other person's already knocked out. Of course, like probably everybody's drugged out. So they get everyone to go to sleep by 10 o'clock and had no idea what I was getting into. And the first morning I wake up and I, you know, putting my clothes on and I go to open the door and all the doors, you know, these two hallways, you have like your female hallway and your male hallway. Um, and they kind of converge in this central atrium. And I go to open my door and, uh, Standing in front of me is the actor who plays Rodney Rathbone, Steve Burns. And he had just been in the studio with me doing these episodes. And I remember looking at him just like, one, like, how are you in here? Like, this doesn't make sense. Um, And he, again, was one of the adults in the show. And he just looked at me just like, you know, this poor kid, what are you doing here? And I think I seem to recall him saying something like, if I had known, because um, like we were just both in shock. It was this very bizarre encounter outside of the studio. I guess his day did job he, was he, he, I think he was yeah, a social worker. I guess we really asked, yeah. did he work there? Was he at, why was no, he at the I, I think he was a social worker because after that hospitalization experience, I believe my parents reached out to him because they knew like the Odyssey connection. And I seem to recall we went to his office once as he was trying to help us figure out like post hospital care, like finding gotcha. therapists or whatever. Um, so I don't know. It, it, I may have hallucinated the whole thing. You have my permission to ask Steve Burns. He has my permission to confirm it. Uh, it because uh, Steve and I aren't on speaking terms anymore. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not- neither are we. We already recorded <laughs> him, and he was a dick. So we he was can a dick it. to you. You know, it, my that episode will was, never see the light of day. It's nice. Aloha, to goodbye, Rodney. <laughs> uh, so, and that that was kind of my entry. It was like this weird parallel thing where, like, the show existed as a part of my life, and then this mental health journey started. And so, post the first hospitalization, my life completely fell apart. I had another attempt about a month later. Um, went into my second hospital. This would have been December 93. And then- So check up now, on you in December too, okay. Yeah. And well, one of the things that was happening at this time in psychiatric care is they these two new drugs, Paxil and Zoloft had just come out and they were part of the same class of drugs that Prozac was. And there were a bunch of other new medications coming out. And I guess the theory at the time was you know, if you medicate the hell out of these kids, they can't kill themselves. If they're so medicated that they can't move, then they can't really kill themselves. And the upsides and downsides of that is that you they didn't fully understand like titrating people on and off medications. So you would take a medication, you would have a really bad side effect to it, probably because it's like too big of a dose, but they didn't realize that then. Um, this was definitely like, there's a lot of experimentation, especially on adolescents. Um, and 
I, let's see, I was hospitalized twice in the fall of 93. Then it became, it was at the point where like I was getting pulled out of school so much that I couldn't go. Then I ended up at like the school for the bad kids, the continuation school. And, you know, now I'm smoking cigarettes. Now I'm uh, much more like, it's hard for me to concentrate because of the meds I'm on. I'm being misdiagnosed every six months. Um, and misdiagnosis is in mental health can be pretty severe because the meds they give you can really fuck you up. Um, yeah, for sure. And so like that story of, of uh, finding out about how um, that occurred, um, I believe, when I was 17. And I think I was so medicated that day. I remember I was outside having a cigarette and my mom came up and she's like, Hal died. And I'm sorry to tell you this. And I just remember like, like my body needed to cry, but my muscles wouldn't let me. Um, it was just very bizarre. And that this was like when they thought I was bipolar and I was on lithium and I gained 60 pounds in water weight and my saliva glands stopped working for a year and all my teeth started rotting out. Um, and so in this part of like, being a kid, you know, you're a teenager, you're in high school, and all of a sudden now you're a professional patient. So I, the schooling was becoming so difficult that I just, I stopped caring. Why, how are you going to care about algebra or geometry when you're trying to kill yourself, right? Um, and the meds, I'm becoming more unstable because as you come on and off the meds, you're, they realize now you're more likely to kill yourself um, or cause self-harm or things like that. Uh, things that they didn't understand, you know, back in the early yep. mid nineties. And so finally I, the determination was made that I just needed to test out of school and graduate. So I, I graduated my sophomore year and then basically became a professional patient in between working on this show. You know, that was like the one highlight of my life. And then the rest of the time I was, and doctor's appointments, therapist appointments, psychiatrist appointments, on and off medications, getting, you know, self-mutilating, punching windows, um, you know, having my blood drawn so much that like they couldn't find the veins. Um, you know, there's years of my life I don't remember. So this um, is kind of the last three years. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like the last three years of, of Odyssey so, for you. Was yeah. So when after I had had this first attempt during that summer after I, so I graduated, you know, 16 years old or whatever, graduated high school. And that summer I was super unstable because of these crazy meds and also the, the symptoms of the mental health problems themselves. Um, I was not a mildly sick person. I, I have a very severe form of the illness. Um, and my dad's like, well, all right, look, you're a crazy 17 year old. So you either need to go back to school, get a job or like, you know, go to college. Right. And so I recorded uh, a voiceover tape with um, some prominent people. Um, Corey Burton directed the tape and the experience of doing that tape. I think I mentioned this the first time we talked. Um, if I'm wrong, stop me. Um, did I mention the tape on the first time we talked or was I I think maybe so. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember how it would happen. So basically the, the thing that I would say is this is the dichotomy of the world that I was living in at the time. So I, I had gone in to do this voiceover demo tape. And the way that this works is you record about two to three minutes of content. It's a really short tape. 
And usually you do little 10 to 15 minute segments uh, of variety. So we're trying to show that this is a person that can pitch blue jeans to kids. This is a person that can voice over something on MTV a station. That oh, okay. No okay. Really I see so like, it's like to submit for auditions and shit like yeah, that. Like yeah, a, yeah. Yeah. And so this, these tapes, the idea of your voiceover reel or, um, you know, your audition tape is that it's going to provide casting directors a good sampling of, you know, your range. And we went in to record, and this was at the Mark Grouse Studios. Anybody in the voiceover industry, like he is a legend. This guy has had this studio for years. He's recorded with everybody, like literally everybody. Um, and Corey Burton, who probably I consider to be the finest voiceover talent uh, in the world. Uh, he does all sorts of stuff for Disney. He's, uh, you know, just Google IMDb Corey Burton. He's in everything. Um, so he used to be an actor on Adventures in Odyssey. And we had an affinity for each other. He was somebody I looked up to a lot for his skill sets. Um, and he offered to help, you know, direct this tape because my family, my parents were very industry naive. And they never wanted me to really do anything that wasn't like a Christian thing. Um, yeah. But now I'm at the age where like, all right, it's time to take your career to the next level. Um, yeah, you're and, trying to figure out how to make this work for you on your yeah, own. Yeah, and like, it, I'm pretty sure I'm good at this thing because these guys keep using me, right? Um, and so I'm sitting there with my mom and there's Corey Burton and there's Mark Grau. And Mark brings out this box of, you know, this is the, you can tell it's 1994. Uh, there's no like tablets. So this, this is like a box just full of paper with like little, you know, quarter pages of lines. And the four of us are just like going through like, all right, what would work for a 17-year-old kid with my voice profile, right? I, you know, I don't have a super deep voice, so I can still get away with some really kind of youngish sounding stuff. So we picked, I don't know, somewhere between like seven to 10 different pieces and assembled them. And Mark was going to engineer the the uh, this uh, session and Corey was going to direct me. So this is like the, there's not too many 17 year old kids in the world that would ever have this opportunity. This is pretty unique. And I go in be, into the booth and one of the things that I had learned, and I think this is a byproduct of coming out of both the mental health system and the, the Christian evangelical Southern Baptist system is I learned early on that if you did things right the first time, no one would get mad at you for messing it up. And back in those days, we recorded reel to reel. So if you made a mistake, it was literally costing tape. Um, yeah. And so yep. I, I learned at an early age, like you just kind of get it the first try and let the, let the adults mess up. And then, you know, I can just kind of hide and no one will be mad at me. Uh, not that the directors were ever mad, but you know, as an anxious kid who's afraid God is going to send me to hell for making mistakes, you know, I try to not make mistakes. Uh, so I go in and I record this thing and pr the whole thing took 10 minutes. I, I took very little direction. There were a couple notes where I made some changes and we get done, but most of it was like one take and done. And as we get done and I'm putting the, the notes together, um, you know, this is a soundproof room, so I can see them talking on the other side of the window, but they haven't pushed the comm button. And I just see them both like animatedly, like they look mad or like they keep shaking their head no and grabbing their heads. And I'm just like, something's wrong. And I go and I walk around 
into the recording booth and I walk in and what it was, was they were mad that they hadn't recorded the entire session, um, that they kept stopping and starting when we would bring in each new uh, piece of dialogue. And the, the reason they were upset with that was that if they had recorded the entire thing from the beginning to the end, they would have shown the industry that this is a kid that can be directed and like gets things right on the first try. And okay, yeah. basically what they were mad about was like, what I just did, no one can really do. Um, and here was an opportunity to really show off kind of like a wunderkind, you know, like a little prodigy. And so I say that to like hype myself. That was the first moment that I really realized I had a world-class talent. And within a month, I was in an emergency room with a tube up my nose and several hundred pills in my stomach, um, having my stomach pumped, um, spending two weeks in a county facility. So like here I had this great skill set. Like that's the high side. That's the good side of my brain. The downside of my brain right there at the same time is just, it's like an athlete blowing out their knee or something in college like sure right as i was at the cusp of this thing um suddenly i'm now like spiraling further down into the mental health world and cigarette burns and cutting myself and um and there is no real support system i didn't have an agent i didn't have a manager uh yeah my parents didn't know what the hell to do and so i was it, it was like this amazing moment where i could see the quality of what I could do. And then it just like got flushed down the toilet. And, and this, this was towards the, this is like the tail end of, of your reign. So yeah, I, I probably only recorded with them maybe three or four more times after that. Before okay. they then finally wrote me out. I remember that I had done a Christmas episode, which was very popular for my character to do these family Christmas episodes year yep. after year after year. Um, and this was the first time I had seen the character name Mr. Whitaker. And I was like, holy shit, they found a new wit. And something's changing. So when you when you asked the question earlier, like, did I get written out of the show for residuals? Here's where we kind of like bring all these threads together. They had finally found a new Mr. Whitaker. I think I was the last, the, me and Azure, who played my sister, we were kind of the last of that first generation of kids to grow up on the show. And we were 20. 1920 starting to go off to college um i think that coupled with like my mental health problems you know i i would get take so much shit because like i was smoked cigarettes outside uh because it's very we realize now that like people with mental health problems like get addicted to nicotine super easy um so i you know i looked like this troubled kid you know outside smoking cigarettes you know like and my favorite cigarette smoking story was uh, one day at the studio, Tim Curry uh, was recording something in the other, one of the other studios, a book on tape, and he would come out and smoke cigarettes and like, I'd be smoking Pennywise cigarettes. Pennywise himself? <laughs> What's that? Pennywise himself? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, got to smoke cigarettes with Tim Curry. That's like my one cool Hollywood story. Dude, I would take up smoking if I got the Just I would I want to take it up again. Like, you know, uh, yeah. We all float it. down here, Davey. Right. Um, and uh, he was, was he, uh, was his name Rooster and Annie? Was that when he did the, uh, mm. am I getting the name all weird? I don't know. I probably fucked the name. No, you're right. But I hate Annie. So I, I, I have a pathological hatred of that movie. I'm sure you're right. Um, that was the first thing I saw I, him in. I can't confirm it, but uh, 
but yeah, so that I, I got written out around that where I think they realized like there were multiple things happening. They had a new Whitaker. They were going union. The kids that they had were aging out. And I think that a determination was made like, hey, let's just bring in a new cast like Saturday Night Live. Right. Yeah. Like it's, you know, let's and then it's going to be fresh for. Take. Yeah. And have, bring in new kids and do things like that. For me, it was devastating. Um, because one, like this was my primary outlet as an actor at that time. Two, I had a really deep affection for everybody that I was working with. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like at the age of 20 being told like, oh, you can't come to the family reunions. And when you're in that age and like everything has been pulled away from you at that point. So I, I had high school pulled away from me. I can remember in fourth grade being one of the few kids when on the first day of school, my teacher asking who wants to go to college. And it was like me and three other kids raised our hands. It was expected that I was going to go. And when I got sick, I became like the first member of my family in like four generations to like not go to college. Um, It was a heavy thing. I sat in the stands while all my friends graduated from high school. One of the most miserable experiences of my life. And watching everybody go off and move across the country to the schools that they're going to go to, start their careers, start their lives. And here you are, you're 17, 18, 19, 20. And this door is shut to you. This pathway is shut to you. You can't do this. No college is going to touch a kid that you know only has 11 months of a high school transcript. It doesn't matter how smart you are. Um, and so, you know, the one thing that I kind of had rooted in me, in some sense of normalcy for whatever my weird life was, was this show. And when that. You know, when I came in and I read the script and was marking my script that day, and like, holy shit, you guys are moving my character out of the town of Odyssey. Like, I know what this means. This means this is my last time here. And it was like a death. It was, it, it but the, it was like everyone you know dying. Like, wow, I'm not going to see you again. I'm not going to see you again. I'm not going to see you. Um, and so it, it, it was a hard thing to grieve that loss. Yeah while going through this like really unstable period of um, of mental health problems and yeah, like especially when you felt like that was your stability during a lot of oh, that yeah. that was the it, constant that was what you know it was like one place to shine oh for yeah. sure yeah yeah it's everything else sucks but here i can you know for a few hours a day i can like all, all the world of mental health bullshit does not exist here i'm jimmy barkley and I can do this. And, you know, one of the things that over the years my mom would say, which I think was an astute observation on her part, was it always surprised her how I was able to, like, get the energy together to perform. And then I would have these really hard crashes for, you know, depression-wise afterwards. Um, so a lot of those episodes that you're listening to me, uh, for whoever's interested, you're actually listening to somebody who's suicidally depressed. Um perform and this is like you know one of the few moments of happiness in an otherwise very very unhappy person um yeah it's it's also a weird dynamic like a mix of like you know that be like with that show being what kind of kept you going what what motivated you and and you being one of the i mean the longest running member of like the show i mean like I was I was it. probably the longest running kid yeah. for sure. Yeah. So like uh, just to, to be on it that long and, and recognize that as something special 
um, mm-hmm. and also to deal with the feelings of being uh, of having that come to an end and not knowing what to do next must have been yeah I, I imagine there's like a lot of weird conflict going on especially Absolutely. when you're struggling with your mental health oh yeah oh yeah for sure no it, it it was a mess and for years afterwards it you know this feeling of like you know to be a mental health patient sucks first of all to be a mental health patient in the mid 90s really sucked and to be a mental health patient in the mid 90s when you're 16 and 17 years old it, it was awful and um I, I probably shouldn't be here right now like it definitely there were enough opportunities where like i was on the wrong med and suddenly i would have an attempt um just doing stupid shit like um you know so it, it yeah it was frustrating that this one like safe place that i loved you know there's something about being on a stage or in front of a microphone or a camera doesn't matter how chaotic my life is suddenly there like all the drama disappears and now i can step into this other world and it it saves me um and so that was yeah. like another thing that that became problematic and then throughout all of that is like now we get into like the part of the church like and the through line of of being a mental health patient in the mid 90s as an adolescent in a christian evangelical environment were, um, and you were consistently part of this were you consistently still like during Adventures Odyssey, part of a church where you go in on Sundays. Oh, yeah. Part of the oh, yeah. Oh, for film. sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And that was kind of a weird thing, too, was like I didn't realize that the show was popular uh, because they never they never told me, like, I mean, I assume people listen. Obviously, the show's still going on, but, like, I never got fan mail. This was before the internet. Uh, there were no chat rooms. So, and nobody at my churches seemed to listen to this. So, or, at, like, my private schools that I went to, and so there, it was like this weird bubble within a bubble where like, you know, and so for years I would hunger trying to find like, oh, did it, who listens to this show? Like somebody out there has to listen to it. You know, I'm one of these rare actors that never actually gets to see fans or, or gets to see their reaction to the show or what it means to them. Um, so it was this weird sort of environment. And then when the mental health stuff started, that was when I stepped away from church because the reception I started getting was pretty frosty. Um, yeah and suddenly the love of christ was not extended to me the way it should have been did you feel like uh so I, at that point how old are you at this point uh, 18 my first attempt was my first attempt was 16 i think i was finally written out of the show when i was 20 but really i was written out like a year earlier or two yeah and then when you started feeling like you know, the church wasn't so much of a welcoming place for you, like where you weren't getting, you know, a lot of, no one was really mm-hmm. checking in on you, seeing how you're doing, making you feel like just a general Well, way worse part of the than community. that. It's not, it's not even just neglect. It's like active gaslighting. Like, um, you know, the, you're trained when you grow up in, in an evangelical, really any religious environment, that when you have a problem, where's the first place you turn to? That environment. Go to your church talk to your pastor, right? Well, you know, the doctors in 1994 barely understood mental health. The pastors surely as fuck did not. And they still don't get it. Like, and so, you know, you would get all this stuff of like, you know, it, it's a sin problem. Really, you just need to pray this away. And kind of like right, how they treat right. the LGBT community. Um, there's this idea that you can just like pray away mental illness. Um, yep. or that it's a byproduct of bad life choices. 
Now, the mental illness will make you make bad life choices. Don't get it twisted. I'm an expert in that. But it's the, their consideration. It's not as thick an egg as I want to make it. It's- yeah, no, it's really not. And it's, I think, like the literalism of that community. Like if it's not in the Bible, then it doesn't exist as a concept. Like if they can't explain it away with this and the number of times like good people with good intentions would just destroy me with like, well, here, let me, let's, let's read Job together. Like, no, for don't like, please stop. (laughs) Or Well, here's the story of the time Jesus uh, sent all the demons out of the man into the pigs. Right. Uh, right? Jesus loves you. Have you, yeah, you know you what I did? Though? Have you been Many to a farm times. recently? I hear pigs are pretty primed for demons these days. Uh, they so. are. For some reason, they don't like mine. I don't know why. Okay. Um, well, you know, it's worth a shot. So, I, I don't want to be like the was, people from your old church community, but I thought I'd suggest it. It was as as horrible as regular society was. The church was the worst. And that's the part that, you know, I, I try and explain to folks is like, uh, it's weird so, you know, the unspoken part about being on Adventures in Odyssey is that this was a Christian program put out by Focus on the Family as a way to like outreach to children all around the world and, you know, start bringing them into the Focus on the Family publishing empire. Uh, Certainly. M- meanwhile, like one of their main kids is having a mental health crisis of epic proportions and struggling to stay alive. And the church environment that I'm pimping. Um, doesn't really want me around. And casualty. My, my casualty problem is a little inconvenient for their narrative. And um, and that was when I first started to really consider, like, is this environment that I grew up in righteous? Is it real? Is it a mm-hmm. hypocritical scenario? Is it what's happening here? Why is, you know, I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount and they're not treating me that way. Instead, like, I'm being... Um, it, it, and it, it's hard to say. It's like there wasn't overt discrimination. Sometimes yeah. there was, but usually it was very, very subtle. It's very like it's not being yelled from the pulpit. It's in the conversations during the coffee break between services. It's people are not talking to you as much. Um, your presence is not really. You can tell when people aren't comfortable around you, especially if you're an actor and your skill set is understanding people's body language and behavior. Um, became a very toxic environment really fast and i i started learning like maybe this is not what it's cracked up to be and are we creating a community that is healthy and healing or are we creating something that's very darker and much more different yeah and one of the while i would wish mental health in a way nobody ever has to go through it in a way i kind of wish everybody did have to go through it because if you went through what i saw and experience the things with the church environment that I experienced, you would see that what everybody today is wringing their hands about, about like the white evangelical culture, like, oh my God, how did this happen? This shit was happening 25 years ago, 30 years ago. This, it's, it is not the healthy thing you think it is. And in a way, this mental health challenge, and uh, while I think it's hell and I wouldn't wish it on people and it destroyed my life, in a way, it was somewhat of a gift because it allowed me to see that the emperor does not wear clothes mm-hmm. and that this loving, caring environment, in fact, is very conditional. Um, there's a lot of people they don't love or they'll tell you they love you by abusing you to your face uh, as though this is somehow a healthy form of love. 
It's like um, love becomes a word for that. Like love is a very, it's a prominent word. Uh, right. But the idea of like, oh, God commands us to love everybody. Well, that doesn't really mean much. It's an because, abstract concept, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. to command love is is, is bizarre. The, and, 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 and but then weirdly, there's like this disconnect because in those circles and the people that practice that philosophy, uh, what that you don't realize is like, you think that you're being trained to become a Christian, to go out there and like do great things. Really what this system produces is two primary behaviors that I observe. One is you you become a Christian capitalist. And so one of the ways of expressing like your Jesusiosity, um, it's a new word I just coined, um, is to make sure that you buy all the albums and the t-shirts and the study Bibles and, you know, to go get the, yeah, yeah. the collections of adventures and odyssey and make sure you have them all. Um, you know, we're not giving residuals to anybody, but make sure you buy them again and again and again. Um, you know, it, the way that like my episodes would keep getting repackaged like multiple times, uh, into new collections and whatnot. Um, so it's like this capitalist thing make sure you buy our books make sure this is a new apologetics book that you know references the last 10 books uh let's make sure you send your kids to private schools let's make sure you pull your kids out of schools because we've got all these books to sell and one of the things that i can say from the inside of it is that white evangelical christianity is largely um its primary product that it creates is a publishing industry and that is a multi-billion dollar publishing industry. There's a tremendous amount of money in it, enough money in it. Um, I mean, who's the biggest like Christian publisher, Zondervan? Yeah, Zondervan is uh, definitely the right. one that comes so to Who's mind. the parent company of Zondervan? Um, Nabisco? I, not Nabisco, close. Disney. Close, <laughs> close. It's no, Disney. News, it's News Corp. Uh, you know, the same guys that like run Fox News and this giant publishing empire. And so there's tremendous amounts of money to be made. And if you teach all of the people in these churches to go and support these things, it's why like churches have coffee shops now and Starbucks is like, Hey, we're Christian coffee, bro. Um, so there's that. And then the other thing that the white evangelical structure does is it trains you how to vote. And what I yeah. started experiencing as a mental health patient was that this is not a hospital for broken souls, like they say it is. Um, this is a place where people are indoctrinated into a methodology of thinking and behaving uh, so that they can support a capitalist enterprise and that they can support the Republican Party. And Christians who are in it don't think that that's what they're doing. I didn't think that's what I was doing. Um, but it you know, as through all the years of struggle that I would go through, I would like go to my Bible again and again and again. And none of it and made any sense to me other than the Sermon on the Mount. And I would just look, read through the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, Jesus is like, you will be able to tell by the fruit that is produced, whether these are healthy trees or rotten trees. And as time has gone on, and I think the world is starting to see the fruit that has been produced by the white evangelical culture. It is not healthy, as we see with like this QAnon stuff and anti-vaxxer and Trumpism and all these like really unhealthy, racist, misogynist, homophobic like elements are no longer being hidden. They're just wide out in the open. And like 
And this is what I observed back in the mid nineties when I got sick was like, this is not healthy. This is, this is not a place to go to for any real assistance. Yeah. Um, so when you started feeling like when you started kind of connecting those dots and it didn't feel like a welcome place, uh, <laughs> obviously a, a lot's changed since the nineties. Um, you know, sure. Your journey's probably take not, I mean, in, it just in you, I don't know evangelical culture maybe maybe not but a lot's changed in you like did you find yourself uh, so it sounds like that pushed you out of the church uh but now you're still at this point in your life you know kind of referencing back to the sermon on the mount in the Mm -hmm. way that you're you're reflecting on the fruit of what the culture that kind of bore you Mm -hmm. produces um and, and maybe they like that fruit maybe that fruit tastes really good to them but maybe not to other people um I don't know that Jesus was talking about how the fruit tastes versus it, anything else. Now, but either way, it, it is interesting using the fruit analogy because they're all like, I don't know, this fruit seems pretty sick to me. I'm I'm down with it. And we're like, nah, I don't really like that fruit. Right. And now we're stuck to like just We are going you know, real deep on this fruit analogy. It, yeah, I know. <laughs> Interpreting Jesus through just whatever your well, personal preference is what, at that point. But right. really what it what it comes down to is like what do I approve of the quality of person that this system creates? Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by the fruit. Like that, and that's what it, that's what the meaning is in the Sermon on the Mount. Is you're right. going to be able to tell whether these false teachers are real or not based on what they produce. And when you look at the behavior of the people trapped into this system, the thing that's shocking so many people now is like, wow, I didn't realize they were that racist. Yeah, bro, they really were the whole time. Well, I didn't realize that I just thought the homophobia, it's not homophobia. Yeah, it is. It really, really is. Um, uh, Well, we're not misogynistic. We just believe in traditional gender roles. Nah, man, you guys are really misogynistic. I know because I was. And the quality of person I became out of that system was less than healthy. Now, you know, I don't know what role that played in my mental health problems. It's impossible to speculate or, um, but I just, I think like one of the first big eye openers for me, and I think this will start to make sense of how like my view of things changed was the way that right wing messaging is built into white evangelical Christianity as a way to very subtly get people to like buy into these ideas that's going to change and inform how they vote. So uh, uh, the best example of that that I observed and where my departure really came was I was told all my life that socialized healthcare is godless communism and that really we, it's most of these problems are a heart problem and we need to have charity, that it's the goodness of people and charity that's going to you know help things. And what you observe in the mental health system is that there is no charity that works. There's nobody there for you. Um, that charity is in fact a very fashionable thing. And it, it goes off of the whims of whoever's giving and may not have anything to do with what people actually need. Um, oh, don't give that man money. He's going to use it for alcohol, right? That's, that's charity right there. That's somebody making a moral determination on somebody else's suffering and whether or not money should be applied to that problem. And in the mental health system, I saw like, man, we need these young guys who are like 20 and becoming schizophrenic. They need housing. They need healthcare. They need, they will never have a career to be able to make enough money to get, to buy privatized healthcare. 
And our society goes, that's fine. Let them be homeless. Let's put them in prisons. Let's, you know, who cares? Um, and so I, I started realizing that this mythology of like charity being a, a proof of how Christian you are or charity being some example of like the goodness of ourselves and how loving we are. And, oh, look at all that our church does. Well, that's a really big church and it has a really nice lighting system in it. But I'm noticing all these people living like in, under tarps. They don't have food. They don't have health care. Um, and as someone who needed health care and had my life destroyed without it, um, I'm on disability right now so that I have access to health care. Uh, so I've been forced to live in the poverty. That Christian charity never showed up in 30 years of waiting. It's, I've never seen it, ever, never, not once. Maybe yeah. there's a soup kitchen at this church. Maybe, you know, once Rick Warren's uh, kid committed suicide, now we're finally starting to somewhat talk about these things. But by and large, the, these narratives that, like, government is bad, uh, the, this whole paranoia in the white evangelical system, you know, I, I, I've sat there and seen myself get kicked out of that system. And, you know, one of the things that I, I mentioned to people, the biggest point where my politics changed was when I had to get on disability. And I realized that everything I had been taught about who would be there for me had failed. My church failed me. My family failed me. My neighbors failed me. The privatized industry failed me. Privatized healthcare failed me. The only entity that has consistently been there for me for the last 25 years has been the government of the United States of America. And every white evangelical is trying their damnedest to tear it down right now. Because yeah, I, my, I have siblings who have been on, you know, uh, disability that mm -hmm. and friends who have been on disability and that, that did play a big part in my, sh and, and, and an ideological shift for me too was like, because you grow up hearing, Oh, the church needs to, it's a church mm -hmm. responsibility, not a government mm -hmm. one. Then you realize right. that you don't get that uh, mm -hmm. from the church. That could be fine if you just stop calling it a church responsibility and, and you right. responsibility. That's fine. Like maybe right. the church can't sustain that. Maybe nah. so. But so I, I I hear you on that. That definitely was uh, a catalyst for some change for me too in what I understand institutional functions to be. Well, uh, you... I, my question for you is, um, it, you know, as you started to feel more alienated, as mm -hmm. you shifted. Um, as that which was the catalyst for a change in mm -hmm. maybe political ideology which for a lot of people a change in political ideology is the, the first step in mm -hmm. removing themselves from evangelical bubbles oh for sure um, it was for me i was still in an evangelical bubble when it happened to me mm -hmm. uh what did what was that because it, it, it varies seem it seemingly varies for a lot of people uh mm -hmm. and i i find that it doesn't always get specifically addressed and i figure but I'd like to hit on it before we kind of sure. come to a close is, is whether or not that, that completely pushed you out of the faith. If it did for a time, if, you know, as you're referencing back to Jesus, so on the Mount, mm -hmm. that might, I can't tell if that resonates with you currently, or yeah. if that's just something you're holding. Um, if that's a standard that you're holding the church to, sure. do, you, do you have an affiliation with faith or the Christian faith? What, what does that look like for you now? Uh, as you've shifted out of the evangelical. It's a great, great question. Great question. And one that is so hard for me to answer, but one of my favorite topics. Where am I now? It's something I ask myself this 
constantly. I think it did not, that realization did not push me out of Christianity. In fact, I clung to it harder and harder for years because one of the things that occurs in mental health is, especially in adolescence, when you start, all these things start dropping off and you're losing them, you start desperately trying to cling on to them even harder. You know, like you're flailing around in the deep end of a swimming pool, like, please, please help me. So I, I, the dissonance that I had that, you know, years, man, years of like on my knees, praying with tears, begging for relief that never came. Um, so it, it, it was never, there was never like a clear switch off. Um, I stepped out of the church system in like 94 when I was really sick. And then back in 2003, when my uh, partner got pregnant and I was terrified, I'm mentally ill and I'm broke and, oh, now we're about to have a baby and, you know, what do I do? So I went, ran back to the church because that's what I'm used to. So there was never really like a clear thing. It was a slow erosion. Um, I think the the moment that sort of killed it for me, if there was one, was uh, in 2003, I was in a church when they announced the invasion of Iraq and everyone cheered. And that was the moment. And, you know, and then he's like, we're one day closer to the coming of the Lord. And everybody cheered even harder. And that was when I was like, oh, God, you guys are like cheering war and cheering the end times. Maybe this is not healthy. Um, I don't currently practice any form of it that would be recognizable to people that practice it. I tell people, you know, if they ask, am I Christian? I would say, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not anything else. I know that. Like, I'm not a full-blown atheist. I'm not a full-blown Hindu or Muslim or uh, any other practicing form of, uh, you know, Judaism or anything. Um, it's impossible when you're imprinted that young. I, I can't shake it. Like, there's no way to get it out of my brain and, like, reset, right? So my all, sure, of, my, yeah. all of my concepts of God are absolute Christian concepts. Um, I struggle every day with like, is it real or not? Um, But it's it's still that language. That's the first language I knew. I don't know anything else. And so where I finally came to a point of, of, I guess, resolution is that, you know, because I still have that fear, like don't reject the spirit, right? You'll go to hell. Um, that's the and, mental illness talking, Dave. I'm sorry. Well, that's the, the other one. No, no, no. The mental illness I'm just is like, kidding. Go, no, the mental illness says like, go ahead and go to hell. God doesn't love you. Um, <laughs> and um, so I think like, I, I'm always afraid to fully reject it. And so what I cling to really is the Sermon on the Mount. I keep going back to that. Like, yeah. all right, this is how we were supposed to, this is, this was apparently so important. It was recorded more than once. And there's a, a clear thing that's being told here where we are given like very clear determinations of what is fake and what is not and what the behavior is that's expected of people. That you are expected to take care of the sick and the poor and the hungry. You are expected to be on the lookout for those false prophets and people who are going to manipulate and abuse you. Like people um, on CNN, false prophets. Yep. Fox News, I would say more. Um, but CNN too, sure. Uh, but like really the entire I was publishing industry. I just, that's what I was seeing. Uh, uh, Sam's a Ben news. Shapiro oh, guy. Yeah, for the real fake sure. news. No, I've... <laughs> um, but no, like, you know, I have to wonder sometimes, like, did I help provide content for an organization that had a false prophet? 
I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm worried that it could be. Are are the people who were put up on pillars of Christian ideology through the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, are these people the people we should be following who are opening up colleges that sell lots of books? Um, you know, is this like a, a healthy environment? And so I think one mm-hmm. of the things that occurs in mental illness is you don't know what to trust. Uh, it's hard sometimes to even trust yourself. And so I try as best as I can to kind of really distill everything to its like simplest, uh, you know, Aristotle form or, uh, you know, just kind of how can we simplify concepts to their easiest level? And sure, when I look at how Christians behave versus this, the Sermon on the Mount, I don't see the same thing. And that's where I tell myself like, well, okay, I'm going to do the stuff on the Sermon on the Mount. And if I'm not comfortable in this other environment, I'm going to stay away from it. Um, and so that I know that's a big convoluted answer. My biggest way to sum it up would be I'm a non-practicing Christian agnostic. Uh, sure. And it's, it's an environment me. that I think is unhealthy enough that I, I don't raise my kids in it. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that uh, as far as trying to figure out how to connect it. You know, there's a meaningful language. I, I, I hear what you're saying, man. I think that's cool. I, I like that you've sat with it, processed it, and Uh-oh, kind man. of come I, to a comfortable place. For decades, because that's what you do. Like, you just sit there, and especially if you're a person with obsessive compulsive disorder, I just go over these thoughts sometimes for hours at night and sure. then multiply that by 20 years. Like, so it's definitely <laughs> it's stuff yeah. I put a lot of work into because I had to. You have to really question, you know. I tried to kill myself more than once and never saw a light at the end of the tunnel. I do have one weird out of body experience memory, maybe. Um, But really like you're trying to resolve like thou shalt not kill with, I don't want to live on this planet anymore. Um, And where is God in that? And where is, you know, where's the Holy spirit in that? And so it's, it, the whole thing is just one giant mind fuck. Yeah. Um, and I find most people that came from my background that also have these health problems also similarly struggle um, with a lot of the same things. Yeah, man, Dave, I don't know if you, I don't know if there's anything you want to just like kind of close out with before we jump off here. I loved hearing well, your story again for at least some of it. What, what's fun <laughs> about doing this, man, is I honestly feel like, it, you know, uh, getting into it. This is the first time I've had to redo a conversation uh, and we had to redo some of it. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like it was fresh still and authentic in that um, even, you know, I think maybe there was enough time removed from when we originally recorded it where like I would probably ask her questions time. that I asked it the same first time and totally just forgot the answers. Yeah. To it. But um, so I, I do think this is great. I feel like it was an, a, a real authentic conversation and we weren't just like oh, forcing it to be something. So well, um, no, the, the if you want to close out important. anything. Yeah. Well, I would just say this isn't, these are important conversations to be having about this stuff right now. And I think I've been terrified to talk about this stuff publicly, terrified, absolutely scared to death. Um, you know, I, I reached out to multiple people in the organization that I used to work for, for help over the, and one of them, one of the writers of the show straight up told me, he's like, don't ever tell people that you have mental health problems especially evangelicals, like it won't be safe for your family. So I don't like to talk about this. I'm, I'm genuinely terrified to talk about it. But I think that 
the reasons for these conversations that are happening in our culture right now are incredibly important. Um, this goes beyond just like Christianity. Right now, we are in the middle of, you know, some dangerous shit that's happening politically. And it's primarily being driven by this group of people who are frustrated that they're losing the culture wars. And so they're going to take over our government. And if they can't, they're going to burn everything down. And I came from that world. I understand the way these people think. And I think these conversations are valuable and it's important. And I feel like, you know, I guess what I'll close with is, you know, two thoughts. One, why I'm doing this. And two, just the thought of, you know, where you're at as, you know, whoever might be listening to this. One, the reason I'm doing this is uh, there's a line in a song from Neil Young, uh, When God Made Me. And there's a stanza in it. And he says, you know, did he give me the gift of voice so that some could silence me? Did he give me the gift of vision, not knowing what I might see? And I've sat with those lines for a long time. Like, I don't want to talk about my mental health problems in public, but I have seen things and understood things about this culture that you can only understand if you go through these problems. Um, and whether I like it or not, it's my duty as a as a person, as a human, as an, a life form on this planet to share those things. If I have the ability to speak on them articulately in a way that people might listen, maybe I've got an audience out there that would be interested in this. Uh, so I feel an obligation and I, I want to encourage others to speak up if you've gone through things. This community needs as much support as possible. And then the second thing I would say is to everybody who's listening, maybe you're a person that is starting to question whether or not you are in a healthy environment or not. I believe the white evangelical movement is an apocalyptic political cult. And my test to people would be, if you think it's not, just tell people that you're considering voting for a Democrat in your church and see what happens. And start there. Start looking at charity. Start looking at the false promise of it. Start looking at the really good things that our government does. Um, and I hope you don't have to go through something as horrible as I did to recognize the falseness. Um, but test it. Try these things out. And and if if you have the courage to speak up, please do so because we all need to speak up right now. All hands on deck, man. Um, these are critical times, and I think there's a great deception happening in our culture, and we have to stand up and put an end to it. Yeah, definitely, man. Ben, thanks. I honestly think this will be well received by you know our listener base. I think that these are the conversations that they're having, the stuff that they're thinking about. Uh, so this was just uh, a real pleasure to have you on, Dave. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to to give the story of how Jimmy Barkley became a Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> well, you heard it here, everyone. Jimmy Barkley is going to hell. It sucks. I know. You don't have to tell your parents. You can if you want to. It might That's be okay. These people party. up in heaven aren't going to be vaccinated. So I'm pretty sure I want to be in hell at this point. Like, All right. Thank well, you so much for the so opportunity. Much, I really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Absolutely, man. Absolutely, and if, man. if we need to take three or, or we need to check in again later, let's do it, right? We'll be checking up on you, man. You scared us with this November bullshit talk. Thank so I, I, we'll, <laughs> we'll be checking up on you, man. Thanksgiving does it. suck, though, so I understand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for all sure. All right, everybody. Thank you all. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>